the 1,000th episode of This Week in Startups is brought to you by 8sleep, the first bed engineered to improve your sleep through dynamic cooling and heating, detailed sleep tracking, and more. Try the pod for free for 100 days at 8sleep.com slash twist. LinkedIn, a business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. And Brex, the corporate credit card built for startups with no personal liability, up to 20 times higher credit card limits, and huge rewards, Brex is perfect for venture-backed startups. Sign up at brex.com slash twist and get card fees waived for life by entering the code twist during sign up. Also, sign up by November 30th and get $250 back after spending your first 1000 Upcoming launch events. Apply for the next Launch Accelerator cohort. Applications are due December 23rd. Learn more and apply at launchaccelerator.co. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. It's been 10 years since I started this podcast, and this is the 1,000th episode of This Week in Startups. And it's been my great privilege to share this show with you and the stories of founders, uh, entrepreneurs, technology for the last 10 years. And we thought hard about what should we do for the 1,000th episode. It is a milestone. It is something significant, I guess. Uh, and I thought to myself, there's nothing I'd rather do than bring some of my best friends that I've had over the 10 years who helped me start the podcast, as well as some contributors from the later years, and talk about some great moments we've had on the podcast. It's not often that you do something a thousand times like this, and the show, for me, is like brushing my teeth or having breakfast. It's no effort at all. In fact, it's a joy. I wake up every Monday morning and I look at my schedule, and the highlight for me professionally is the conversations I'm going to have on this program. And it is truly meaningful when you stop me on the street or send me an email. And like one founder told me, I watched your show all through high school with my friends and college. And now I'm pitching you my startup and it's my dream come true. And I just thought to myself, a legacy I never considered would be that tens of millions of people would watch this podcast, which I did for my own entertainment and for my own uh, desire to talk with interesting people, it never occurred to me at any point in time that this might inspire some of you in my audience to start companies or for you in the audience to think differently about the world and what the possibilities are for you and your friends. And to me, it's truly meaningful. And when you see me in public, stop and say, hey, Jake out and tell me what your favorite episode is. And we thought, why don't we do that on this podcast, this thousand time? We could have asked some big friends to come on the pod and maybe do something, you know, like a great guest. But I said, no, nah, I want to have Tyler back. I don't want to have a great guest. I want to have my Tyler back. I want to have my Lonnie Donnie back. I want my Lon Harris back. I want my Brian Alvey. No great guests, just my friends. My friends who actually made this show what it is. The truth is, I tell founders all the time, you're going to have to be great at building a team because nobody gets there alone. And I am the shining example of this. And this show is probably the best example I can think of of nobody getting there alone. Tyler, Brian Alvey, Jackie, Lon, Gina, uh, Brandis, so many people have contributed over so many years. Grant, Luke, uh, Matt, so many people making so many contributions uh, to these thousand episodes. And I'm so looking forward to the next thousand. 
And who remembers 10 years ago this theme song? It's what it's all about, man. They said, money is the root of all evil. What? Funny how it feeds my people. Yeah. We ain't gonna live like equals until we get the money, spend the money, and defeat you. Yeah. Money is the root of all evil. What? Funny how it feeds my people. Yeah. We ain't gonna live like equals until we get the money, spend the money, and defeat you. Right. That was like the intro at some point and we had no money and we just took a stock free song because we had been using at the time we had been using at the time Jay-Z's Run This Town. Run this town, yeah, that Alicia Keys but Jay-Z we kept, song. That was before YouTube would take you down. So we just went with some <laughs> copyrighted music. Yeah. And everybody's like, Oh my god, I love the theme music and I'm like what is the music? And then everything was New York because I had just moved to LA. Right. That was, I think that was a big early issue with the theme song was that it, the show's from Los Angeles, but we come again from this song that is all about being in New York. It's very confusing. Very confusing. But we really didn't think that much about it. And that's Lon Harris who's with us, who was the original newsreader. Yes. You and I met back in- uh, January of 2007. Uh, and you were one of the first hires at Mahalo, Rest in Peace, which is now inside. And we still work together on that. Do you remember anything about those first episodes or the idea to do it? I mean, you had already been doing a show called, I believe, the Calicanus cast. Right. So when we were in your pool house working on the early days of Mahalo, that was when Tyler came in to help you produce the Calicanus cast and keep doing that. So that that had been sort of all going on in the background. Right. I'm not 100% sure where originally the idea of like... Right. Because, uh, you know, you would just come in some mornings to Mahalo and be like, here's what we're doing. And I, yeah. in my my perspective, in my perspective, that that was what happened. Like, you just came in one morning, we're like, we're turning that room into a podcast studio. Calicanus cast is going to become this week at Startups, and then we'll start a whole bunch of m- more podcasts, and it just sort it's of grew, crazy. and the story grew in the telling. But that that's very Jason, though. That's like one Saturday he texts me, and he yeah. says, I'm thinking about doing an incubator. And then on Monday, it goes down in the newsletter. We're doing an incubator. Yeah. We're, we're hosting, right? Yeah. You just text me this thing. See, it was the same with the podcast. Yeah. I just happened to be in town. And you're like, oh, yeah, on Sunday, come by. And we're going to put a microphone on you and talk. Like, yeah. Oh, okay, sure. I think that might be an infuriating or inspiring quality I have to work with is that I sometimes just start doing crazy stuff. But you guys seem to have liked that part of working with me. There's, there's there's definitely pluses and minuses to this. Yeah. On the plus side, you, I've worked at a lot of places where things stagnate because everybody kind of gets, here's what I'm doing and here's my job and everybody develops tunnel vision. And then you're a year later and you look back and you're like, this past year we got no closer to our goal mm-hmm. because everybody just kept their head down and kept working, working hard, but without thinking about what's coming next or planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's good to suddenly just have big ideas, then like big make a turn, we're going to do this now. But it can be frustrating. I, I think the, the comparison I used with you that I've used other times is it's like being on a train and you're in the you're in the front of the train. Yeah. And you're looking out ahead like, I want to go right. I want to go left. But those of us at the back of the train are like, oh, we got to figure out how to like make this work. You know, like yeah. we're, 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 we're sort of like it, it's this delayed effect. Yeah. So I, I do sort of feel that way. Like sometimes you can feel like you're being pulled and you don't know where you're going or what you're doing because things could change. Yeah. Way up ahead. That I tried you to do it less and explain more of the reasoning behind it as opposed to just being unilateral. We're doing this. I'm considering this. Here's why I'm considering it. Does anybody have any feedback uh, on doing this? And Tyler's with us from Thailand. Hey, Tyler. Hello, hello, hello. Sawadee <laughs> Um 
what are your first recollections of Calacanis cast and then This Week in Startups? Because you, you and I met because you were commenting on my blog and you were a day trader in downtown LA 12 or 13 years ago, reading my blog and making enough, trades based on it. Strange enough, I was reading from Thailand at that time when I commented on your blog. And we happened to come home for Christmas and you said you invited me over to the house and then you similar to as you were saying you know just had this idea you know this podcast and and so i ran i remember running the guitar center and getting those microphones that you're talking into today or at least the ones that lon um, and brian are talking into those exact ones and and in fact that same mic stand that uh, brian's using today (laughs) (laughs) all these years later yeah yeah and start just getting the nuts and bolts of the equipment and putting it down and uh, we did the. I remember doing the first one in your, in the right at, 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 out in front of the pool house, hmm. and then calling, getting new guests, and the guests kept getting better and better, and uh, the quality kept getting better and better, and then the the cool part was like the intro that you just showed, where the the fans of the show started helping improve the quality of the show by giving a better intro and jingles and and other elements that, uh, and that is when it to me of realizing that this was going to take on a life of its own. Yeah, and in that first group, we I remember we had Ron Conway, Ev Williams, Luik, a bunch of the web celebrities, Gary Vaynerchuk, Kevin Rose, were in the Calacanis cast era. And then we rebranded right. to This Week in Startups because I was like, Leo is doing This Week in Tech. This other woman, Denise Howell, is doing this, I believe was her name, This Week in Legal. We should just make it startups. It'd be a lot and easier. That, but that why you were... You remember, I mean, Leo has since come to uh, be cool with it all. But I remember that was a big brouhaha. Oh, that, yeah. That there was a lot week. of tension about that at the time. Yeah, and it was weird. I apologized to him for later. I was like, I didn't realize. I I thought it was an homage more than anything. But I never realized it was a problem. And I'm sorry. And I apologized to him if he felt, you know, had overstepped. Yeah. But I think he realizes that now. But back then, there were not that many podcasts. So to have two podcasts with any kind of similarity, I think, felt at that time very strange. Now, in the age of everybody has a podcast, it seems like, of course, you're going to have lots of different things that are uh, overlap or have similarities. So, and I couldn't get any guests, uh, or it was hard to get guests. And I was like, "Who's who can I get immediately? Who can't say no?" That was you, Brian. I was like, Brian can't say no no, uh, because he's my best friend. And so I asked you to come on the first podcast. What what do you remember about that? And how did I pitch it to you? Because I can't ever remember. Yeah, it was it was just like the accelerator, the incubator. It was just like, oh, hey, uh, two days from now or tomorrow, I'm doing this thing. Try to find a collared shirt, maybe brush your hair. And (laughs) I had a lot. I had like Einstein's grandmother hair. Yes. And uh, and that was it. We went into some long conference room at the Mahalo place. Yep. Uh, they, I don't think they hung some sheets. And then we just kind of sat and did our thing. Yeah. That was it. And we talked about whatever mattered back then. And you got some feedback from that episode. Do you? Did anybody listen to it? Do you remember? Well, so I think we told people that we knew. I think it, somehow it was streamed live. Like it was. It was out there. Yeah. Back so in the we day, were... there was UStream. Right. It was yeah. a big sh- live streaming was a big deal back then. Right. There was Justin TV and UStream. Those right. Were the two. The players. two. And yeah. Justin became. Um, Justin's Twitch now. right? Twitch. Right. Yeah. yeah he spun mm-hmm. out to Twitch. Mm-hmm. And we were live streaming, and the audience for live, would we get like 100, 200 people? Would yeah, they were live. very engaged, and they and were they listening, were... and they were commenting. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. But we didn't know what we were doing. 
Mm-hmm. Certainly didn't know anything about radio or any of that stuff. But I think one of the first episodes that broke out, Lon, I think you remember this one, was Gary Vaynerchuk, episode sure. 24. Maybe we could play that clip, jog everybody's memory. The people that are watching right now right. don't understand how fucking smart they are. Right. They don't realize they're part of a 2 to 3% Jedi that understands where the whole world is going. Right. And the opportunity to create a real-life business, because we're entrepreneurs from the get-go. Right. If we told our forefathers, the entrepreneurs of the 60s and 70s, that you could build these businesses on this internet thing, zero cost to create the content. Zero cost to distribute. Zero cost to distribute. And now because of word of mouth marketing, like Twitter and Facebook. Zero marketing costs. Zero marketing costs changed everything within the last few years. No friction. Zero friction. No friction. And I think everybody should be in the content game. Fuck Gourmet Magazine. Whole Foods should be the content leader. Wow. (laughs) I mean, people give Gary a lot of... You know, whatever. He's over the top or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, talk about calling it 10 years ago. That podcast would be huge. And, and that I, distribution and content would be yeah. a huge thing. The part that, that stuck out for me, even at that time, was he's yelling about, you know, like, the everybody should be making content for the internet. Why isn't Whole Foods making content for the internet? If you think about it now, Whole Foods, owned by Amazon, Amazon Prime, making a ton of content for the internet. He, exactly. He literally called it. He called it. Whole Foods is bought by Amazon. Amazon bought the streaming service yeah. we were likely using at that time. Yeah. My, how's the world changed? Back then, I had no kids. The iPhone was version one. Twitter we was between, nascent. We were in between one iPhone two. one and two, we determined. Yeah. Yeah. The word of mouth marketing. He didn't even call it social media back yeah. then. The, the word didn't even exist. That is actually a great point, Tyler. They called it word of mouth marketing. Because we didn't have the concept of virality, really. I mean, you like social media as a term existed, but it wasn't. We didn't. We didn't understand. Like it, at that point, it was just another thing. It was like another. Some of these startups are doing this thing called social media. I believe Twitter was calling itself microblogging. Yeah, microblogging was yeah. the term. So it wasn't like accepted as. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're making a company, you have a social media department, and they market for you online. Like well, that was not it, like. Real-time media, like the, the idea that it could be in real-time, and Twitter had this branding of itself as, we're a real-time platform. Yeah, that was the mind-blowing part about Twitter, was that if you said what you were doing, other people could see what you're doing within seconds. That was the truly mind-blowing thing, because it was on SMS. It was the real-time nature of it. Like, And the bar crawl, or the... You know, where we're going next at South by Southwest, somebody would tweet where they were going, and that was the mind-blowing part of It was of like Twitter. a scavenger hunt type yeah. game. And yeah, I mean, you have to you have to think back to 07, 08, 09. We're not all used to our whole lives being on our phones yet. Like, the uh, your smartphone, it's still, you know, a few years old. People so, didn't have them. Some people were still on some Blackberry. People still some people didn't were have still them. on Nokias. Right, so the idea, you know, today we sort of take it as, well, yeah, what's exciting about that? You get a message on your phone and you write back and it's all in real time whatever but like the idea that news and you could make news and find news and virally share it all from your phone was still pretty new and exciting and we've come a long way from what was like instant microblogging to uh the death of democracy and and ruining elections you know <laughs> yeah. who, who would have thought 10 years ago that I'm, I'm telling you what i had for breakfast on twitter would lead to what we have now. Right. And the, the joke used to be that it was so disposable. Mm-hmm. Like, well, nothing would ever get, you know, like, oh, he's stare at tweets all day about what people are eating for lunch. You know, like that was the joke about it. it was everything That it was not Facebook. important. Yeah, people only no post impact. garbage. Nothing, nobody reads it. Nobody cares. Uh, the, the idea then that we would have a president literally setting national policy on Twitter. Or Arab Spring. Yeah. A- would, any of those things. Right. Would be mine. You wouldn't believe it. Right. It was considered a goof. 
and it was considered nobody was watching it. And yeah. to that extent, people were very loose about it and would say things that were off the cuff to the point at which discovering what people said in the first half of the Twitter era to find out who said something completely inappropriate, just search for a keyword, sure. became like a, a national sport in the last five years. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that was the era when James Gunn was just writing pedophilia jokes because he wasn't thinking one day I'm going to direct a Disney franchise and people are going to go back and scrutinize Crazy. these jokes. Yeah. Crazy at, to think that that's how far it's come. Yeah. The ultimate hack for being more productive is for you to get better sleep. As a founder, as a team member at a startup, as a venture capitalist investor, you need sleep because you need to make great decisions, sharp decisions, and you need to have your energy and your mojo when you get to the office. Well, if you don't sleep, what happens? We've all been there. The anxiety, you're up all night, and then you start thinking about sleeping, and then you don't sleep because you're getting anxiety. Well, I have the solution for you. It's called 8Sleep, and it's the first bed engineered to improve your sleep. I love this product so much that after using it for a month, my wife and I fell in love with it. We started giving it as gifts to people, and I actually invested in the company. Listen to this. Customers who sleep on the pod fell asleep 15% faster. That is a noticeable difference. 8Sleep is a sleep company, and the people who use 8Sleep, they toss and turn 25% less, and they have a 17% increase in periods of deep sleep. I know this because in the app, it tells you all this data, and it is awesome. And all of this in a very comfortable bed. And the thermal alarm will wake you up naturally by changing the temperature. Because if it's cold, your heart rate goes up and then you start to wake up. So supercharge your health and productivity like I am. Get the sleep you need and deserve by heading to 8sleep.com slash twist. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash twist. Try the product risk-free for 100 days. I'm not just reading you the ad. I am a super fan of the company. And now, yum, yum, I was able to get a little slice of their last round. And I put a couple hundred grand in because I love this product so much. And thank you to 8Sleep for supporting the thousandth episode of This Week in Startups. And I look forward to the next 1,000. There's a generation of people, this is what I find the most mind-blowing. People don't know that the word podcasting came from the iPod. We were listening to these podcasts primarily on iPods. Not pri- exclusively. Exclusively. The, <laughs> only, the software only worked on an iPod. I, I mean... You had an iPod catcher. It I suppose, wasn't yet in iTunes. I mean, I suppose there were probably other companies making MP3-type players that could no, I, I had one before the iPod. But, 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 but there, there was... I looked this up recently like because... Dell, I know, had one, you know. Right. No, I, I had a big brick one that could hold all that stuff. But it was never a thousand phones in your hand. It was never pitched to you by Steve Jobs to put it in right. your pocket, right? But uh, I looked this up. The term was... Uh, it was either 2005 or 2006, like February. It was first mentioned, first coined. And within a month or two, probably five, oh five, we had an Engadget story about what is podcasting. And if you look at it, it's hilarious. It's like how to get a podcast, where do you find them, how do you download them, how do you listen to them? Stuff that we take for granted our phones just do today. Right. But there was a whole how to oh, yeah. on it there. You and we were we were very feed. early. Yeah. yeah. You had yep. to get the RSS feed mm-hmm. with enclosures. Correct. Right. You I had to, I had to hand and encode. The Engadget enclosures right. for PT and uh, Peter Ravas and yep. Ryan Block to put those in there. And then they would publish a new feed and have to run out and like re-edit the thing to put the enclosures edit back the in because we weren't the, ready yet. And then if you were a consumer, you had to have a, something in your Mac system tray mm-hmm. where you'd put the URL in. You'd have to have your iPod plugged in. You'd have to hit the sync button. And then it would make an album with the name of the podcast. So they figured out how to hack the you iPod faked, right. to say – 
there's an artist mm. known as Jason Calacanis with mm. an album called This Week in Startups with tracks yeah. that are numbered. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Is, I mean, at the beginning, I only knew how to get at podcasts through iTunes. I think like most people. Like right. the tech, when the technology was new, you were sort of relying on the, the player to find the – I didn't even know how to go track mm. them down. And what's interesting feet. is – and this is where Dave Weiner does not get a lot of credit – the, the person who sure. created this whole movement yes. uh, by adding enclosures to RSS, the three things you can do that are uncontrolled and unmediated by big companies, the web, email, and podcasts, all based on open standards that are controlled by nobody. And all three of those are the most resilient forms of media um, and the m- most important channels to perfect as a founder. And if you're doing Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, any of these other things, you're just renting space temporarily. But the more you put into that RSS feed and the more it compounds, the more independent you are. And that really is, when you think about independent media, it's astounding to me. Email would be the other one. Email, right? Yeah. That's funny how email is now digesting what the function of what RSS was doing because no – Kids today don't have a clue what RSS is or subscribing to a feed, but yet you get you subscribe to an email list now through your email. Why did RSS get killed? How did that happen, Google. Brian? Google built Google Reader. Yeah. They made it free. Nobody else could build a reader anymore. And then they decided one day, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, I, RSS <laughs> that, was a vital part of my daily life until Google right. Reader went away. Google single-handedly yeah. went in, killed mm-hmm. the other companies who were making money from them, and then pulled the rug out from under. A cynical person would say that was a strategy, but do we think that's a strategy? Oh, I, I guess I'm a cynical person. <laughs> I just assume that was intentional. Yeah, like they literally killed this open. Well, because now what do you have to do? Google News. They definitely killed it. Yeah, but when they killed it, I mean, there was a lot of people dependent on it, and a lot of things were going on with uh, the, the the. There was a, quite a bit of an outcry when they decided to pull Google Reader. Yeah, there was. I remember. Yeah. I was part of it. And it's, in a way, Twitter replaced it. So instead of you starting a blog and having your own URL and thing, you just have your Twitter feed. And Twitter doesn't support RSS anymore, or does it? I don't even remember. But that was a big piece of Twitter. No, I don't think you, you can't find RSS feeds from things from Twitter, but they're about to let you start following topics. Which so would be great. There, there's your RSS reader. Yeah. Which you can do on Instagram now, too. I mean, there are other ways to do all the things that we used to do with RSS feeds. It's just it was a really handy. Why, why did podcasting become such a phenomenon? I mean, listen, we've been at it for over 10 years. Yeah. 11, really. Uh, why do we think this has become such a global renaissance? Because the number of podcasts in the last two years has gone supernova. Bananas. What I mean, I think it? there's 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 probably so many reasons it's not one reason okay but let's go through them i was <laughs> i was reading uh you, you know there was that new york times piece a few months ago about is youtube radicalizing america's youth and you know like right. how the youtube algorithm can suck people in and this article it's based on a study they were saying that's really not what's happened it seems that way but it's really just that youtube is providing this platform that's low barrier to entry and anybody can start a channel and so it is it is fulfilling a sadly it's fulfilling a real demand that there were a lot of white supremacists in America who wanted to get their message out, who didn't have an avenue to get it out. And YouTube has provided them one. And that's just what's happening. It's not anything about YouTube's algorithm specifically that's doing this. And I think you could probably sort of say the same thing for podcasting that not white supremacists, but that there were 
hundreds of thousands of people who just wanted to be heard, who just had things to yeah, say. Had a voice. Com comedians who wanted to make jokes, people who had political opinions, people who had thoughts about how you should eat or exercise or do crafts at home or whatever. And like all of a sudden now there's this technology that lets anyone share what they're thinking with the world and it, it's easy to do. You just need a microphone and a laptop or your phone and you can start a podcast. Yeah. What do you think, Tyler? Why has this become such a phenomenon? In the last two years, it's largely because of the combined confluence of things like bandwidth finally getting to a point where, you know, downloading a 200 megabyte file is no big deal anymore, which, you Even know, like uh, pop. Yeah. And the, and the mobile getting to a point and the, the bandwidth and the speeds getting to that point. The production is no longer an issue as long as saying anyone can more or less do it. But there's also um, prior to technology becoming what it is today, you know, going back decades ago, it's human nature to to join around a, sto a storyteller and forming a tribe and this sort of forming tribes around stories and narratives and this is the function when you look at the podcast kind of menu within apple and you see all of those different you know icons of those different you're essentially selecting and subscribing to a tribe and a storytelling narrative and this is something that humans have been doing since the beginning yeah what do you think brian why is podcasting i think airpods are the last 20 percent of podcasting is airpods made it so delightful to have your headphones in previous to that you couldn't sleep with headphones in because you had the cable tangling it's just was a pain in the neck and they're so convenient i think that increased the last 20 percent of consumption you really sleep with your airpods in? i fall asleep with the airpods in oh. all the time well i love to go to bed on a podcast I, something about it i just put on a podcast i'd like like to listen and fall asleep no i just i just feel like i'd be too physically like aware of them i don't feel like no and then i just every morning have the ritual of trying to find white ipods on white sheets <laughs> it's like really yeah. like a fun thing you just flip your sheet up and just see mm -hmm. where they went sure. uh, and try to catch them as they go flying across the room um but that seemed to be a in the the, the high speed mobile yes plus the separate app by apple was definitely a watershed moment that they defaulted that as yeah. opposed to having it buried in ad feed in iTunes. I mean, plus stuff like Spotify now adding them. Spotify. Like wherever you listen to whatever else you're listening mm. to, there's probably a podcast option as well now. All right, here's a famous moment on the show. This is episode 180. Let's cut to this. Important episode for me. The business is on-demand town car service. I push a button and in five minutes a car appears. I can see it coming to me. Uh, when it arrives, I get buzzed. On the map, it shows you... A car coming to you. A car coming to you on a Google map, yeah. basically. Yeah. And it tells you how many minutes, the driver's name, yeah. and my billing information's already in there, yeah. and my phone number's in there so I can That's text right. with the driver and along the way. And we put iPhones in all the cars so we see the exact route it was taken. When you get to your destination, you just walk out of the car. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to worry about tipping. It's all included. It's all included. I think this is your billion-dollar company, I'll be totally honest. I'm an angel investor, so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of biased. But I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I think it's a billion-dollar company. <laughs> I mean, that's the craziest moment ever. I, me saying to Travis, I think this could be a billion-dollar company. We didn't think Uber was a billion-dollar company at that point, yet it was only in one city. I will always remember this day because you showed me Uber before you were making this episode. Uh, you had it already on your phone, like a beta. Yeah. it wasn't out yet. No. 
and you were showing it to me, and I was like, this is never going to – this is a stupid idea. Why would I get into a stranger's car? How do I know, I know. they're not going to stab me? What You got to have a women jumping in and out of random people's cars. How are yeah. they going to – I didn't I didn't see it at all. I always remember that that's what – this is why I'm not an angel investor. <laughs> Tyler, you remember this because we had had Travis at the Open Angel Forum, and you were there, and you had the opportunity to invest. Yes. Well, you, yeah, great. And you very graciously, we, after we were leaving the dinner where they pitched, and by the way, I, I have a very fond memory of the pitch at that dinner where Travis stands there in front of the screen. He connects his, essentially a phone to a screen, and we watch at the, uh, they only had one car in the entire system, one drive. There was one Uber driver in the entire system when he, there were four users and one the, driver. Yeah. And the driver's driving, and you watch him on the map, and all of a sudden, at the end, the car pulls up right out, you know, five meter, ten meters from the pit when the pitch ends. And, uh, and it was this magical, like, holy shit moment. And um, on the way out of dinner, uh, well, ac- actually, right at that moment, he says, well, you know, we're raising 300000 at a $5 million valuation. And you, I remember you holding up a piece of paper that said 50 k on it. Like, I'm yes. committed for 50 k and they cut and, me down to 25 because uh, they had so many investors well, yeah, from but, that party who wanted to go. Right. Well, the, there, there was five other people. I was sitting next to Cyan Bannister, and she's like, I, I think I'm doing this. <laughs> and then Shervin was there. He was doing it. Chris Aka was First there. Round. He was in. Like, yeah, that, they, everyone at that, at that moment, at the end of the pitch, he had got his 300, essentially, right then and there. And on the, we went... We left together as everyone departed, and you were like, you want to split this 50K? And I was like, give me a day to think about it. I remember the next day saying, nah. And then here's my – I, I empathize with you, Lon, because three months later, there was a TechCrunch post about Uber gets a cease and desist from the city of San Francisco. And I remember emailing Jason and being like, ha-ha, <laughs> 50K down the drain. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. Suspend disbelief. Uh, Brian, before we left for the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, why technically podcasts became a big deal. AirPods, iPhone, uh, the dedicated app from Apple, all this stuff. What, do you, what else do you think? No, so I definitely think there's a, there, there's two pieces to it. There's the technology side, right? Mm-hmm. Phones got easy, the bandwidth, everything everybody said, right? You went from that and gadget story from way back when about how friggin' hard it was to find Thank one, you. to make one, everything, to now uh, Anchor. You just push a button and start talking. And then it, it distributes it everywhere. Like it couldn't be easier. Right. And then so that's the technology side. But then also I think people have seen the sort of the first wave of people who did this mm. and the impact it has yes. to have your voice or Gary Vaynerchuk's voice in my ears talking to me. For a decade. It's hypnotic for a decade. Yeah. And I remember when you were talking about who should read your book, do the audiobook of right. Angel. You were with and me. They and were, they were fighting with you on this. You were with me in the room? Correct. Yes. We Explain were talking to people them. where we were. Yeah. So we were at HarperCollins. Uh, HarperCollins, correct. Exactly. Business. In New York. So we were eight ta- people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So they had a large marketing team and you had no use for them. Uh, and uh, so you were explaining to them, I'm going to read the book. And they're like, no, you're not going to read the book. We have professional people that do this. We're going to get, they probably named some people. Yeah, they named um, the people who did Cheryl's book, right. that did Ben Horowitz's professional. book. The, the best people. So they, they told you a couple of reasons why you couldn't do it. One was nobody can maintain the same tone for five days and go back and fix mistakes and do things like that over five days and sound the same. And they don't have the stamina for it. And you're like, I think I can do it, right? Give me a mm. shot. And it's funny because you ended up telling them like, look, I'll just do my own. I'll pay for it, whatever. You pay for yours and we'll see which one works. 
But I, I think what they were missing, which goes back to the podcasting thing, is your voice is in people's ears twice a week, all week long, or when they binge yeah, for weeks at a time. And having that, like people will hear you somewhere and turn around and go, it's Jason, because they know really your voice. Weird, so yeah. you're in their minds. So I think people are seeing the power that people have from podcasting, from just that sort of hypnotic part. There's also, I mean, it, it's it's listening to it. It's having that voice in your head. But I also think psychologically there's something about like it's every day you're in your car. The, these voices are with you for your commute. Your brain starts to think of these people as friends. And oh, it's the yeah, same thing right. that happens with YouTube where we've seen like if you watch a YouTuber every day, they open their videos by saying like, hey, hello, good to see you. Yeah, Thanks hey, for everybody. watching. And you begin to feel like this person is your buddy. It's just natural psychology. And it does it confers a lot of power on the person who's talking. I mean, Adam Carolla got into this podcasting game early. Like, he makes films now. He writes books. He's got this very dedicated audience that's hanging on what he says every I know. day. That's crazy. I've been on his podcast twice. Mm -hmm. Once in the first year of it, then once last year. And here's a guy like, and I mean, I like Adam Carolla. Like, he used to host The Man Show. Right. He was just was the, the stand-up. He Right. And like, he was, you know, a morning drive guy in LA, but it's not the same as when you've got this yeah. audience that's just of yours that you're talking to for like an hour a day, every day. It's yeah. it's, it's its own thing. Yeah. It's also become powerful. Like um, I remember my friend Sam Harris, who used to come by the Mahalo office, and we had him do a Q and A with Reddit. And instead of typing, he just recorded it. And he said, "Do you think I should do a podcast?" I said, "You're built for podcasting, but just be careful; it's going to take over your life." And sure enough, that's exactly what it's done. I don't. He hasn't published a book since, <laughs> and I don't think he'll ever publish another book because he's become so good at it. It seems like there's a common theme between who's good at podcasting. Tyler, what makes somebody the ideal prototypical podcaster in your mind i was saying that it's evolved over time a bit and i would say now the most recent generation of people who have really you know become a success of it i think there was a real transition at the pewdiepie era and i think pewdiepie had kind of to lon's point really got the listeners to feel as a bros like he does with this fist pounding and hey bros and how are you doing and this and it goes back to my earlier point of he's creating his own tribe and it's an extension of family believe it or not like people used to as people still do in thailand and in southeast asia and a lot of the world function in actual real tribes and that has become sort of uh, dissipated and fragmented as, as a result of technologies of sorts but at the same time it's replicating it and we're becoming digital tribes of sorts so that's uh again goes back to the human nature element of it and the ones who do that best like i think pewdiepie is uh, show, paving the way as to how that uh, will look going more forward but that will become more extreme i think you'll start to see that element of you know this uh, fraternities and sororities of uh, digital groups combining online is what will be the defining characteristics of successful podcasts yeah Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris. Yes. they are all kind of towards the right. And then on the left. Who are... Well, I mean, it, it, it makes some sense because just just like what I was saying, like there was a demand, like a lot of people justified or not. A lot of people on the right felt like media doesn't represent my views. Mainstream journalists don't represent my views. And so here's a platform where 
anybody can show yeah. up and just start talking. And so finally, all of these views can start being expressed. And I think that's definitely a big part of why, like, the Ben Shapiro's, the Stephen Crowder's, even the Alex Joneses, like, those kinds of people can yeah. find these huge audiences because there aren't as many alternatives. What do you think of the deplatforming of an Alex Jones? Is that something you would worry about or like on a freedom of speech basis that corporations are making those decisions or great decision. This guy is causing a ton of harm in the world. I'm curious what Lon Harris thinks. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, am I a little uncomfortable with companies making decisions about who could say what? Sure. It's not a, it's not a perfect system, but I, I think there are extreme cases where you, you have to, and that, that, that having the person on the platform is creating more conflict and more confusion than, eliminating them and and i think that he's a great example i think milo was yeah. a great example of someone who like i don't think you should do it willy-nilly you're like i don't like what that person has to say but when it's legitimate hate speech yeah milo is yeah. the most of uh, the most challenging of those because he's so insincere and so manipulative and so cynical in his approach sure. it's like i am a narcissist i want all the attention what gets me the most attention Oh, being a Nazi being or vile, right, being yeah. vile? Great. I'll, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. So if I say feminism is cancer, that gets me more attention? Great. It's almost like a precursor to Trump, which is I need the most attention in the room. It doesn't matter how I got the attention. It's the attention that matters. Sure. This is just super disturbing. It's like hey. the, defining, the defining philosophy of our era. It's the, there's yeah. no such thing as bad attention. Right. No bad PR is literally has actually manifested itself, but I don't buy it. I think it's a short-term hack. All right, listen, there's 600 million people on LinkedIn, including me and you and the person sitting next to you and the three people you just emailed. And you have to hire people. But where are all those potential candidates? Well, they probably have a job right now. And so you got to get in front of them because they're passive job searchers. If they see something interesting, they might just click it. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's how you do it. Watch my associate Presh. He's going to go on LinkedIn Talent Solutions and he's going to post a new job for our client success manager in our Toronto office. He quickly selects the skills that are needed, writes a quick description, adds additional screening questions, which I love. And then he sets a daily budget that's, you know, reasonable. And he's on his way to finding the perfect candidate, whether they're looking for a job or not. LinkedIn is going to get you in front of hundreds of millions of job seekers who are not actively seeking a job. So with LinkedIn jobs, you can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. What? Yes, that's right. LinkedIn Talent Solutions is going to give a 550504 you right now. All you have to do is go to linkedin.com slash twist linkedin.com slash twist. I don't know how long this is going to last for, but it's $50 for you right now for free from our friends at LinkedIn. And by the way, a hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. And you know that that's true because how many people do you know who found a job or a candidate on LinkedIn? It is the central repository of talent. And now with LinkedIn Talent Solutions, you can leverage that massive network. And hey, LinkedIn, Thank you for supporting the thousandth episode of This Week in Startups. It means a lot to me and the team here and, of course, our listeners. Let's get back to this amazing episode. We had this crazy guy on in <laughs> episode 244, and I had met this guy because he was your, he used to come to the angel investing stuff we did, and then he said, I'm going to make this like email list platform to do angel investing, and his name was Naval, and here he is on episode 244. And the consumer uh, investing business brand and reputation is everything. 
mm -hmm. the way you build a brand and reputation these days by serving the entrepreneurial community. It's almost a race to see who can be the most helpful. Which is the way it should be. Which is the way it should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, the value is all in the entrepreneur and the effort they put in 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, right. puking in the shower from the anxiety of I don't like it when VCs failure. say that they build companies. They support the entrepreneurs, but they don't build the companies. You've had bad experiences in your career? I think all of us have. <laughs> We've been around long enough. I, I really feel like as an investor, if you can't back the founder until the founder's ready to give it up, then you probably shouldn't be backing that founder. But that's just a personal opinion. Power corrupts. And I think most of the VCs who have really good reputations have built them by being good stewards. This is a really interesting moment because when you watch me in this moment, I'm studying Naval. Because Naval had this like really amazing insight about being founder supportive when the industry was still the venture capitalists controlled everything. And he had this radical idea, and this is in the 200 range, when the show, I think as a host, I got better at listening and answering short, asking shorter questions um, and got a little more serious about my interview technique. And I used the podcast at that time as a way for me to get information. And I think that was like one of the great uh, reasons I became good at angel investing because I just used it as a way to ask people smarter than me, like really probing questions. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of successful podcasts that are built on that. Like, I'm going to ask you something, and then you come in and educate me about this topic. Yeah. Like that actually, Jonathan Van Ness uh, from the from Queer Eye. Ah. He's got, uh, I forget what it's called, look it up. It's like something with JVN, and that's literally it. He just finds it, people who do something that interests him, and he has them sit across yeah. from him, and then he's just like, I don't know anything about this. Tell me about it. Yeah, Brian Koppelman with uh, yeah. The Moment as well. Tyler, what did you think? You remember meeting Naval back then? Yeah, of course, but there's, there, there's something else going on there, which is he's setting uh, a tone and a cultural expectation that is now being shared amongst all of the listeners of the podcast around culturally what are what is acceptable and non acceptable because that wasn't obvious at that time when he said that that it should really be about the founder and his platform the angelus really gave much more power back to the founders actually right and then similarly uh, to the same point where the launch conference really in its essence if going back to the very early origins of that was really about changing the culture of Silicon Valley away from startups paying to pitch at, at conferences. And that is thankfully kind of totally gone now. That doesn't exist anymore. But it, people take it for granted that startups aren't supposed to pitch at conferences. But that wouldn't be the case if the launch conference hadn't started. The point being that um, this show, I think, should uh, can take a bit of a bow in helping shift. And, and Naval deserves a lot of credit, and a lot of people do. But... Uh, the, the podcast like this and others really help disseminate the, the the culture of what is acceptable and not and what we're going to tolerate and not and help get those conversations out there uh, in our in our tribe, so to speak. It is amazing the power of media to change things. We had that famous moment where the Karetsu Forum was charging $5,000 for people to pitch. And I got so outraged about it. I said, we're going to start our own Karetsu Forum called Open Angel Forum, and we won't charge, and I will go on a jihad and murder the Karetsu Forum, and I held up an AK-47. And <laughs> I just want to say, said that. I was an ins <laughs> I, I just want to let people know, I was an insane person at that Bless. time, <laughs> and nobody listened to me. It was pre the podcast being popular. I was literal nobody in the industry. I was on the periphery of the industry at best. The fact that Sequoia invested in me 
led people to wonder if Sequoia had lost their minds or if they would have to deal with me ever again. And I was an outsider's outsider at that time, which is hard for people to understand. And it's also been hard transition for me to go from being the outsider's outsider to now being inside the tent, or maybe even some people consider me the establishment because of these things. But Brian, you did the Open Angel Forum in New York for me. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that time period? Do you remember the Koretsu Forum? Do you remember no, I, I do. demo conference charging $25,000 yes. to be on stage? What was the manic craziness as my friend? Tell me in all honesty, was I out of my mind? Uh, you were, you still are. Uh, but if you're right enough, it doesn't matter. Ah. See? So uh, so we were talking before about founders uh, that kind of take their team on a wild ride and are constantly changing what we're going to do. Oh, let's start a podcast. Hey, let's make a, you know, an accelerator. Great. Uh, if you look back and they worked out, then there was nothing wrong with it. But if you really jerk people around for 10 years, then that's a bad thing. So we talked about this on episode 500 and 501. When you interviewed uh, me. When I interviewed you. The, the 500th. I think I, uh, I kind of led with... Um, my God, you you get credit for creating so many things, but everything you created was a reaction to something else. Oh, you have a hot dog stand? I can do a hot dog stand, but I'm going to do it with you know a yes. mayonnaise, right? Something. It was always some twist. And that was one of those. Open right. Angel Forum, which led to the Uber investment, was Which led a, to me being the Sequoia Scout. Correct. That whole thing that came whole because thing. you wanted to kill off. Somebody was doing something wrong, and you thought, I can take that. Perceived I can, I can do that. I can do that better. I can do that better. I can make a better one. I can make a, a Wikipedia with ads, right? I can do. I can do yes. this. Do that. Well, right, I, that's what I was going to say. Right. It, Mahalo was a, functionally similar because it was SEO is garbage and it's ruining the web. Like, what if we did it this way instead? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we brought that up on there, and I went through I think twelve cases of uh, oh, you <laughs> yeah. have Dig. I could do Netscape, right? Like yeah. there was everything yeah. was a reaction, and you didn't like that question. You were, I didn't. You, you know, you were I, I never thought that I, I, you know, I guess one does not examine the course of their life all that much when they're in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an observation I could never make myself that I was reactionary. And I think I'm at peace with the fact that maybe one of my skills is to iterate on other ideas that are in the world. And I'm okay with it now because I don't feel like maybe I am the creativest person to make the new thing in the world that never existed. Maybe I'm a person who looks at themes that are going on there and just does their own spin on them. And your 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 sort of rebuttal on the old episode was like, but there's nothing wrong with that. I made some cool things. I'm like, yes, yeah. you did. You did. It was a good answer. Yeah. I mean, is anything original too is something as like you get older, you wonder. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, everybody's company is kind of iterating on all of the other Same ideas thing in music. that have come. Yep. Well, I mean, we're right. talking about even Uber is, it's what if taxis were good? Like we, we know what taxis yeah. are, but they don't work right. They're bad. Hmm. What if we made an app and technology that like allowed taxis to work the way they're supposed to. Right. Episode 244 was taped at the same time as episode 251, the same two or three day period. A friend of mine, uh, Greg Sang, who had a company that was um, like a dating app. I forgot the name of it right now. But he had a space up in that was previously ABC Studios for local TV. And he lent me that black studio and I slicked my hair back with a bunch of gel. And I asked a couple of friends I had because I was living in L.A. at the time, if they would tape a series of episodes. And uh, episode 251 is uh, one of my favorite of all time. I don't do angel investing, um, and, and I'm sure you have some of this perspective. I mean, I mean, I do it. Obviously, I'd like to make some money on it, but I look at it as much as anything as pay it forward. Yeah. That people helped me. Right. And I think if you've been relatively successful as an entrepreneur, it's incumbent upon you to help people who are 
coming up behind you. Yeah, it's and well so, said. Well said. Like if I look at my angel investments, if like overall it, I break even, awesome. I'm, I'm happy. And that was my friend Dave Goldberg, who died three years later tragically of a heart attack at the age of 47, a year younger than I am, four years ago now. Uh, and he was the mensch of menches. Tyler, you remember him. Uh, you remember that episode, I'm sure. Yep. And that, I, I, funny, you don't think of it now, but I, I now that's clearly the black era where every all the curtains were black everywhere. Yeah, we did black you, everything. It was terrible set design. Yeah. You would wear a black uh, jacket. Vest and it looks like your <laughs> yeah. head is floating. Yeah, yeah. but um, that's another great example of the cult of the sort of cultural influence that Dave's beautiful point there of the pay it forward nature of Silicon Valley and helping that. Of course, that's obvious to people in Silicon Valley or maybe even in LA, but you have a, a large audience of listeners today throughout Europe and the and now it's a quite a global thing. Uh, who that is, it wasn't totally obvious because that wasn't the way that things were going down in a lot of markets, so to speak. This um, pay it forward culture is now extended through, um, you know, a, a lot of the rest of the world uh, in, large, in some part due to kind of he people hearing Dave's voice sharing that gospel in that way. So, so what I, re I really like about that is I'll tell people that there are three things, or I used to tell people when they would ask what to do for a living, how do I explain what to do to my family members? I would say, well, you've seen the social network, right? The Facebook founder and screwing over his co-founders. Like, that's part of my life. That's part of what I do. And my co-founders don't like that um, when I tell that story. But I explain uh, Shark Tank and This Week in Startups. And now people don't really remember the social network so much. But Shark Tank's still thriving, this show, still on. And between those two, it helps me explain what I'm doing. And it's funny to look back at what Naval said or what Dave said and these insights that they have. And you think, you know, there was a time before nobody knew the phrase product market fit. Right. And no, people didn't call this startups and entrepreneurism. Like they called it, like I'm, I'm starting a company. I'm going to start a magazine. I'm going to start yeah, a go this. To Silicon Valley, start you know, a company. I'm going to do this thing. But it wasn't startups. Startups with a, you know, uppercase S. And now it's just, it's so easy to explain this. There's a big educational shift in those 10 years. Uh, Shark Tank is the number one show. Uh, they'll always tell you that it's watched by three generations grandparents, parents, and kids all at the same time. So people know what does it mean to go out on a shiny floor and pitch somebody for money? What does it mean to do one of these startup conferences? What does it mean to go on this show yeah. and talk to people? And you look at these insights these people have and you're like, well, of course we shouldn't crap on founders. Of course we shouldn't take them for a ride. Of course right. we shouldn't be jerks. But back then, it, before product market fit, before this, it didn't exist. Yeah, and before Quora and blogs and podcasts, all the secrets of how to do this right were hidden in people's brains and in advisors. Couple of Jedis. Yeah. Couple of Jedis, and there was no text. There mm -hmm. was no place to go to understand how to do it. Yeah, I think some of these, I think it is a sort of partly a function of Shark Tank. It's the same, like you hear lawyers and judges lament like the NCIS right. syndrome. It's like I the object. same. Yeah, Shark yeah. Tank is like that. Like everybody now watches NCIS, so we all think we know about forensics mm -hmm. and we're all familiar with these criminology yeah. terms. It's sort of the same thing. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if it's if it's just the Shark Tank effect. I think it's just also the reality of people watching as these tech companies take over the world. I mean, Google going from when I was in college, like, oh, there's a new the Lycos. They've got a new Lycos called Google yeah. to now legitimately being one of the biggest companies in the world. Ditto Amazon, ditto Facebook. And I think that has really given this whole m multiple generations of Americans now this idea of like, oh, here's what it is to start a company and here's how companies grow. And like the when I was a kid, you know, 
big companies have been around for a hundred years. Like who started Chrysler? Like I don't know. There's always been a Chrysler. It wasn't part of the. It wasn't part understanding and unpacking it, right? And the trajectory of it. It just wasn't common knowledge. And now it's gone it to exactly. becoming common knowledge. Yeah, I mean, right. when I was fifteen or twenty, like there really weren't that many businesses that had started and then become world dominant. But, but even even Microsoft, the people who founded Microsoft, the first guy who put in 25K, 100K, a million, the first eight employees, the first 13, all the stuff that happened in Google that we know about, that we know about in Facebook, that we know about in all these startups we talk about today, Twitter, it all happened back in Microsoft. There was just no, it wasn't a sport. It wasn't covered right. like a sport. Right. And so all of the same things happened in Microsoft. We just didn't know those people. And we look yeah. back and go, oh, that guy put it, put a dollar in there or whatever. It's different. It's covered differently. When the Brex founders, Henrique and Pedro, came to the U.S. from Brazil working on their VR startup, they were rejected for a corporate card. Well, they pivoted and they built Brex, the corporate card designed just for startups. Now, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this. There's a lot of buzz, but there's thousands and thousands of founders now using the Brex card because it doesn't require a personal guarantee, which is scary. So founders don't need to put their assets or their credit history at risk. They underwrite your startup, not you as the founder. So that means the card limits can be 20x what you would have gotten with a traditional corporate card. And they eliminate the hassle of tracking receipts with their automatic receipt matching tool. And you get unbelievable rewards like seven times the points on Uber and Lyft, four times on travel, three times on restaurants, and 2x on reoccurring software, also known as SaaS. So if you are a venture-backed startup based in the U.S., Brex was built just for you. So I want you to go visit brex.com slash twist and get card fees waived for life by entering the code twist, T-W-I-S-T at startup. And in addition to that, this is crazy. A special bonus for the thousandth episode of This Week in Startups. You spend $1,000 on your Brex card and they will give you $250 back. Wait a second. You spend $1,000, you get $250 back. Think about that. That's a free $250 for you. It's the biggest offer anyone has ever given away on This Week in Startups. Thank you to our friends at Brex for doing this. And all you have to do is sign up for Brex by November 30th. Just go to brex.com slash twist and you're going to get 250 bucks. Amazing. Thank you, Brex. And we had um, a Google executive who had recently left on episode 291. And this became the first time I let the podcast go as long as it was interesting, which at the time everybody was telling me to hit certain breaks and to do a certain cap. And there was a lot of pressure on me not to, uh, there's a lot of pressure to end the show and not make it long and that the show was too long. And I said at a certain point, I don't care. I'm doing this because I am interested in the conversation. I'll go as long as I damn please. And if you got to change the tapes or you're tired, mm -hmm. you got to be somewhere tough-ish. We're going as long as I think it's interesting. I don't know if it was that. I remember those conversations. I think there was this idea that people wouldn't like it. Like if you go beyond an hour or 90 minutes, like people wouldn't like that's it. how long shows are. And if we go too long, people aren't going to like it. They, they don't want it to be that long. We just didn't like part the of the of a three hour show. Right. And what we now know is like part of what's interesting and cool about podcasts is that it doesn't matter. You're not, you don't have a time block. You have to fit between these hours. Just sure. make it as long as it's interesting. Like, like Pete Holmes right. will do a three-hour episode of You Made It Weird, and it'll be great. I'll listen to the whole thing. Yeah. But it's or, no different than than Howard Stern. And I, I know no bigger Howard Stern fan than you, who's yeah. listened to all this stuff. It was and, a big influence on me. Right. You wanted to be the king of all media. Like, that was your thing. 
And he's been doing that since, you know, what, the 80s, yeah, 90s? He would go four hours, right. five hours for an episode. He right. was contracted but even, before. But even mm-hmm. that was like, well, Howard's on from 8 to mm-hmm. 11.30. It was still like a block right. of time mm-hmm. that he had to, like, fill he or not fill. He had four hours, 6 to 10. Right. And then if the show was really rolling, he told them, I'll just go over. Yeah. And that became so punk rock right. that you, Howard, the next host, he would just say, you'll, you'll um, start your show when I'm done with mine. Yeah. If I'm rolling, I'm rolling. And here we are rolling with a gentleman name that nobody had heard of named Chris Saka. I just rebranded myself. I created a thing called the Salinger Group. It just sounded mnemonic and familiar. Yeah. I had this great site. It's not, the salingergroup.com isn't up anymore, but you can go to the Internet Archive and, you know, the Wayback Machine. It's, you'll notice the site says a lot of nothing. It has no address or phone number, but it says a lot of bullshit because I needed to cover any angles that I was going to go make money on. Yeah, yeah. And I just went out with this business card now, and I just said we instead of I, and people were like, Oh, yeah, the Salinger Group. I heard of you guys. You guys do good work. <laughs> and so before you know it, ching, ching, I'm getting rung up. People are hiring me as a consultant. They're giving me equity in their company. And like it became a real thing. Yeah. And I started, I, I started actually building a real business. Fake it till you make it. So the Salinger Group was so successful that a bunch of my buddies had lost their job during that time when they had gaps in their resume. You know, because they put it the took a year group? To, Yeah, they're like, hey, buddy, can I, can I say I worked at the Salinger Group? I'm like, yeah, sure. Just tell me what your response is. Yeah, I'll endorse were. that on Rise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. Everyone kind of fit the Salinger Group to, to just make, yeah. to stay within their career trajectory. Oh, where did you work? Oh, you worked in the Hong Kong yeah. office? Yeah, can I say I did healthcare consulting? Yeah, sure, buddy. It's all good. It's hilarious. And we went for hours and it was really the first time I I felt like I was a good host on the show because I wasn't sure like the first 100 episodes or so. I probably talked too much, interrupted mm-hmm. people too much, but I felt in that one that I was starting to learn 300 episodes in how to get the Mustangs to run, how to get people to talk. Because somewhere around episode two or 300, I started studying other interviewers deliberately and trying to figure out how they got people to talk more. And I started doing explicit techniques around asking questions that would open people up. Do you remember that double episode, Tyler? Yeah. And when I'm watching these episodes now, it's it's awesome to see and it's i think it's not a coincidence that a lot of the favorite episodes are in that 200 300 category because that's where all this this major shifting was starting to happen um the chris again another one of those culture silicon valley culture shapers uh sharing some early insights there and um you did you you really you yourself realized okay this thing is uh, an awesome opportunity here and you wanted to take it more professionally and take it to the next level and it wasn't just about um a, a small time thing and um yeah yeah i i remember you changing your own um commitment to making the show as uh as strong as it could be yeah i wanted it to be better but that doesn't mean we always booked great guests i've only deleted one episode in the history of the pod Mm. One episode. And I never censored anything on the episodes. Um, Although if somebody said something they regretted, I always gave them the option to edit it in post. But this one individual, um, (laughs) Milo Yiannopoulos, and a bunch of people were making a bunch of waves. And they were starting publications. And they were pitching themselves as media executives. And I had an individual on named Chuck Johnson. 
I didn't. I didn't, never knew about this. Well, because I very quickly deleted the episode <laughs> for a very specific reason. I realized I had platformed a racist piece of shit. Yeah, he's not a good guy. And I had set. I had. He had asked me to be on the pod. I needed guests, and he was doing something called like Got News or something. Anything news? It was. It was Got News. Was it Got News? Yep. And anyway. He was in Gawker every two weeks. I was like, let's get sure. some controversial guests on here. I was going to have Milo Yiannopoulos on because mm-hmm. he was talking. And he and before they became alt-right crazy, they were kind of just media executives trying to build things. So Milo Yiannopoulos had a blog network. Remember he had copied Weblogs Inc.? Mm-hmm. And he had hired one of our writers, a couple of our writers, and, it was, and he didn't pay him or something. There was some big controversy there. But you remember Milo from that era? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. And he was writing for The Guardian, and he wasn't right-wing. He was just kind of flamboyant and contrarian, almost like yeah. Peter Thiel before he went full There were Trump. already some right-wing ideas in there, but it, it was not what he later became. It was not what they later became right. when they became full Nazi. Yes, it was. he had not taken that hard turn yet. Right. Where he was just saying anything for attention. So I had this kid on, and I'm realizing during the interview that I've made a mistake. And that I've had a racist piece of shit on my own podcast. You can beep the ish. And I'm going, oh, this was a mistake. And I don't want to be in the room with this idiot anymore. So here we go. I mean, here's the problem that we have, right? So we have have several problems. Problem number one is... People do think you're kind of a racist. Yeah, no doubt. I said to him, like, I I kind of think you're a racist at the end of the podcast. And I deleted the episode. (laughs) Because I was like... And I don't remember what number it was, but I was just like... I don't, I don't remember if Jackie was with me at that point. It was pre-Jackie, I believe. No, 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 no I was here. You were here. I was here. Do you remember booking him and Milo, Milo, and that period of time? What did you think? Did you think I was crazy for booking him? I think a little bit, but I think you were, you had an open mind about what was going to happen in the conversation. So it was just trying to get him to understand what he was thinking. Right. Um, but after the fact, we didn't, I think we took, like, we didn't put any sponsors on the show. We kind of released it as a bonus episode. Yeah. And then pulled it later. Because it was like, there's nothing of substance that's been said here. Yeah. And the person is doing the white power symbol secretly, uh, you know. Was he doing the, the Not the on the show, or? but in other places. And sure. I was like, I... I don't feel like propagating or being associated with this person, so I just thought yeah. I'd yeah. take it down. Yeah. Nothing, nothing yeah. of value really came from the that conversation. That was the thing. It was so. boring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's not a and stupid he's not an entrepreneur. And he just emailed me that he's invested in companies, made a bunch of money, and he wanted a meeting last yeah. week. And he was like, I think he invested in Palmer Lucky's. Oh, good. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, thing. And Palmer together, Lucky, sure. I invited on the podcast because oh, he's doing this. I guess, military stuff. I thought right. it was really interesting. And he's like, you guys trashed me on the podcast. I was like, I don't remember, but come on the podcast. Probably and deserve to be trashed. What, I think he had some burner accounts on Reddit was the thing with Palmer. And I don't know if it's true or not, but he said it wasn't true. I was like, come on the podcast. We'll talk about it, whatever. Um, but then we had, I think, a great moment. Um, I love this book, Creativity, Inc. And I, I thought I was very touched. And people ask me often, what's my favorite episode? And I don't have a favorite episode, but Jackie, my Emmy award-winning producer, thank you, I told her that, you know, I really want to have him on because the story hit me very deeply, and that was Ed Catmull, uh, who was one of the co-founders of Pixar. And here is Ed Catmull. When did you know that this was going to be a great film? 
was there a, like a screening you went to or a moment in time? Because I think when you're in making a piece of art like this, you kind of lose perspective, don't you? You're yeah. kind of like inside the belly of the beast and the right. belly of the whale. You, you don't even know where you are anymore. No, I didn't know. I mean, I, John had a lot of confidence. Steve did. But honestly, for myself, you know, until it opened up, I didn't know. So obviously, I'm reading all the reviews. As I'm going through review after review, what I found was that at most, the reviewers would use only one or two sentences to refer to the fact that it was made by a computer. Right. The rest of the review was about the story. Amazing. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, we've done it. We hit it. Complete vindication for you. And then one week later, we went public. The week after the movie comes out, Steve Jobs times the IPO. That's right. And when we went out to do the roadshow... Before the movie came out, we told everybody, this is what our business plan is. This is what we're going to do. But we don't want you to invest in the company until after you see what we've done. So confident. That is such a Steve Jobs move, isn't it? And not only that, this is where the other brilliant thing is. He said, at the end of this film, right. then Michael Eisner would realize he's actually created his worst, his worst nightmare. A competitor. A competitor. Yeah. He funded the greatest competitor. So he will want to renegotiate the deal. Oh. And Steve said, when he renegotiates, I want to come in as an equal partner, which means we have to put up half the money, which means we have to have the money in the bank. Therefore, we have to go public. Wow. And the thing was, that's what happened. What a master strategist. So for all the you know, challenging nature of Steve Jobs, they, he, just, he was so above the rim, like as a player, like just a strategist. He was just so brilliant. It's, it's fascinating to see like how he could see the whole chessboard. I mean, he was looking at three, three chessboards, three matches ahead. That's right. And he was our partner. Incredible. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Like he, he just saw it. And then, so when he comes back to Eisner to renegotiate, what's that like? Does well, everything he say come true? It, yeah, everything happened just like Steve said was going to happen. We entered into the deal. We got precisely what Steve said was going to happen uh, nine months before. Hmm. So it, it laid out perfectly. Jackie, you uh, <laughs> did that for me. You got him. I did. Tell the story of getting a cat mole because this was not easy. Yeah, it took, you know, years. I mean, just, it's, yeah, it, there's no real science to it. It was just persistence, you know. Is this the right time? Is this the right time? We'd love to have you on. And then he, emails, just, he finally, emails. 20 easily, mm-hmm. yeah. 20 emails. And I, what I love about this moment is that um, you could see because he had been, he had had so many interviews about his book and everything else, but this is a moment where like he was really excited talking about that time, Yeah, you know, and he's like, it's awesome. Like he, some of the stuff he has, I had obviously said a bunch of times, but this is a moment where he was really remembering and just the whole insider baseball with Steve Jobs and everything else just was just like, he just seemed really happy to be doing the interview. And it was a really long interview. It was a two-parter. It was like a three-hour thing. And he just yeah. loved every minute of it talking about it. You know, it, it, and, and this is in the era, I, I'm thinking it was like 500, episode five, 600 maybe. This is when I felt like I was getting good as an interviewer because I was using a technique there, very specifically when I look at it, where I will say something to the effect of, what, what was, I can't imagine, what was that like? What did like, I'm actually confounded by it. Because I am genuinely confounded by it. And it gives him permission to actually go back to that moment. I call it, like, take me to that moment yeah. kind of interview technique. What was that moment like when that happened? Could you remember where you were? And trying to get into, to recreate that moment is, I think, I've, you've probably seen me use that technique a number of times yep. since. And 
once in a while, somebody you'll see it in their face where they're, and I saw it in his face there, you know, like he's, he's remembering that moment where he says, and you had Steve Jobs. He's like, and he was our partner. You can see that he was like, I played on a team with Steve Jobs, and it was super. Mm -hmm. it and he worked. was talking about Toy Story, if that wasn't. Oh, sure. it's not yeah. clear. It's Toy Story yeah. and how close right. they came to failing. And and people forget now because it's become so like computer animation is just animation now, right. and like there's a whole generation of kids where that's what cartoons look like to them. Yeah. But at the time. Early computer animation, we did not think of as on the same par with Disney animation. No. It was blocky and too shiny, and it really looked fake. Like, what Pixar did with Toy Story coming out, there had never been a computer animated feature film before. Before that, it was literally like... I want my MTV. Yeah. Dire Straits well, like, with the blocky lawn, figures. And like Lawnmower Man. Like lawn they remember the man. horrific Lawnmower Man <laughs> Looks VR. like it was made on a PCXT. Right, where it's monstrous. And and for them to come and make Toy Story filled with these charming, lovable characters who have human expressions and people who relate to Buzz and Woody. Uh, it was like night and day. Like you can understand why when you're watching that clip where he's talking about, I want you to see the movie before you invest because it was revelatory when you first saw Toy Story. Yeah. Another great guest that took us years, Jackie, that you're particularly proud of is Alien Lee. Yeah. Which was just happened recently. This is yep. episode yep. nine eighty eight, just ten episodes ago. Most recently, yep. How long did it take you to get Aileen? Well, again, years. Yeah. So we we got her to be on stage a few years ago, but as part of the investor discussion. Right. But to have a one on one fireside chat because she's very um she's pretty private. So it's fun. hard to, and she was always very nice, but she kept turning us down for Angel Podcast for all of the conference, you know, for the last four years. It's incredibly and then finally, isn't it? <laughs> and finally, but but she was always, you know, lovely and gracious about it. But it was just like, yeah. God, I don't know. Maybe she just never wants to do this. And as the greatest producer of the podcast ever, is it hard sometimes to book for me because I am an out there personality and people might think I'm a jerk or an a-hole or cantankerous. There's some people who would just never be on the show because they don't like me, correct? Yes. How do you deal with... <laughs> All right, there we go. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm self-aware of this. When people have that expectation, what do you do as producer, Emmy Award Ring producer, Jackie, to get people through that? Do you have examples without maybe naming the person of somebody... Who thought I was a jerk, did the podcast, and then actually enjoyed it, or people where they did the podcast were confirmed he was a jerk and then hated you for booking them? Um, the latter has not happened, okay, as, good. as far as I know. Um, you know, I think it's different between men and women, honestly. Like, uh. I think that men will just, they've just decided about you either way. I think women maybe have heard things earlier or something or just have some perception in my crazy days yeah and days. so for them you know i'm careful to point out you know i'll just <laughs> slip in oh you know we're we're hosting this you know founder university for for women entrepreneurs yeah. and we just kind of like managed to slip in the, all the stuff that we're doing and right we care deeply like, about diversity in the industry yeah on the exactly. investment side of the business right so. and make sure they understand that piece of it like and proving then, that we're good actors or trying at least yeah yeah, so they, in a subtle way, that's not saying, well, you may not know this, but but it's just like, oh, here's what else we, we have going on. We don't broadcast what we're doing in that way for diversity all that much. Yeah. Yeah. 
What's the worst reaction you've ever gotten? Somebody, did anybody ever say, I hate that guy. I'll never be on the show? Because you shield me from this. And this is the first time I we're do. ever discussing this. I know. <laughs> Tell me the worst thing somebody's ever said. Like, I would rather die than be in the room with Jason Calacanis. No. No? No, not that. I'm trying to think. Um, I didn't oh, mean it oh that Nick. Way. Nick has, <laughs> Nick's got <laughs> Does one? Nick have a story? I think that they're um, not on the podcast, but I've had... And I honestly can't remember who it was. It was a woman who I asked her to speak at an event, and she was just really, Adam. and I and I honestly didn't even engage. She was just so obviously it was like whatever she information. I was so out of date that I just didn't bother trying to correct huh. what her perception was. And I was hmm. like, I okay, okay, yeah. So here's another example of. Uh, a, an incredibly amazing individual who was very difficult to get. Um, and I just love how she responds to, you say something very obvious um, about her and right. her accomplishments, incredibly accomplished person. And she's very humble. And I just love how, th and the, you are talking about diversity in industry and you're asking basically, you know, is this enough? And I just love her answer to this. So, okay, here we go. Not only you're an activist, um, you're a pioneer. And I mean that sincerely. Like, to come into the industry when you did and do what you did and to stay relentlessly positive about it in the face of it maybe not being a positive experience at all times and power through and set that example and take it so seriously that your funds succeed and that you succeed because you know what it means to other people. It's not enough that they have women on the team page. But that is a big step. Yeah. That it's not all white dudes. Well, I think, um, thank you, by the way. Um, it's a movement, right? Like, this is not going to, everyone in this room can play a positive part in being an example to other industries of how we change the venture-backed ecosystem or industry, how we change companies, how we change cultures, how we change how people are hired, how they're evaluated, how they're coached or sponsored, um, how people communicate with each other. Like, everybody here can do it, and we can, it can't be on the shoulders of women to change it. Um, it can't be on the shoulders of a small group of women. It has to be a movement. Um, if you think about some of the social movements or the social change that's happened in, in society, um, it, like, for example, maybe the change in, in the attitudes towards gay marriage, right? Like, it's, it was just this mass acceptance and support for something that just is the right thing to do, and it makes a ton of sense. And, and I think in tech, that's what we have to do. And a lot of industries, it's funny, like, after we started AllRays, uh, we became kind of partners with Time's Up which is an also a, a fantastic nonprofit organization and there's Times Up Entertainment and Times Up Medicine and Healthcare and there's Times Up Advertising and we've met some of those, the founders of those organizations and they've told us they're looking to us to build a playbook to show their industries that it can be done. Yeah, and it was great about that moment and you kind of saw a little bit of there with the cut is when I, I, and I just said that sincerely, Jackie, like yeah. you're a real pioneer, you know, and it must not have been easy and you power through it she kind of got very choked up and I think we cut the camera off of her because we saw her getting a little choked up. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a very powerful moment for me because I didn't expect you would get choked up about it. It's like, you worked in VC for 20 years and that makes you a pioneer as a woman. Like, you were one of the first women to be at a major firm and be a partner and actually make investment decisions. Yeah. Like, that makes yeah. you a pioneer. And it was a great conversation beyond that way. I mean, she, Dollar Shave Club is one of her companies and just... Did she coin the term unicorn? She, she did. did. Yes. Yeah, she she's coined did. the term unicorn. That's yeah. pioneering right there. Yeah. I mean, on, on many nothing levels. else. I mean, it's one of the hard things is to get people to agree to be on the podcast is not easy um, all the time because sometimes 
the people who do the most in the world want to talk about it least. You know, they're just doers, and they they don't want to take the time to talk about it. Um, I loved loved the Smashing Pumpkins, and Jimmy <laughs> Chamberlain started getting into the internet, and somehow we had. Jimmy Chamberlain on the podcast, and you were here for this, and you booked it. And you're also a yeah, Gen Xer, and this who's is, a I, huge fangirl. Yeah, I know. And I also, um, I picked this because this was this is going back. Like Alien was the most recent. Jimmy was probably the first, and this is my first year here. And I love this because um, I actually I didn't know you very well. Huh. You were still in LA at the time. It was before yeah. you had really moved here. Hmm. And so I was just thinking, like, who would be cool? And I just happened to do research, and Jimmy Chamberlain. The Smashing Pumpkins drummer just started as a startup. He was right. doing Live One, that music immersive thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, oh, that would be interesting. So I reached out to him and he said yes. And and you just like lost your mind. <laughs> like it was so great. I was starstruck because I had no, I had no idea. Pumpkins were a large part of my <laughs> Form formative years in my 20s I mean that was my favorite band at the time yeah and I had no idea and I actually didn't even know I remember I asked you I was like is this this is when I was still asking you is this okay to ask this person on and you're like yes but it wasn't until we got into the studio that I realized oh my god you were such a fanboy like you were so I was taken yeah I, and you know what the thing <laughs> is in the early days I was like Jackie I'm really busy. I have this like daughter now. I'm busy. Will you just pick the guest? And she's like, I, I want you to pick the guest. I was like, you're the producer. Pick the guest. And we came to an agreement that you'd pick half. Right. And I would pick half. Right. And then I said to you the last couple of years, I don't want to pick anybody. I just want to show up, find interesting people, and make some mistakes. And if it's a mistake and it's a bad guest and it's a dud, which happens, what, one out of 20? We'll just make it a shorter issue episode. Now people shorty. know if I made you into a shorty. If your episode's a half episode, of course you sucked. Sorry, ten minutes and sorry 50. about that, Brian. So, so you, so you Brian's had a, always been a full episode. You, you had a magazine a long time ago, Silicon Alley Reporter, Thanks. and I was an art director on it in ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, somewhere around there. Uh, before I joined, it, when I joined, it was a color magazine. You, you were doing great. Yeah. Before that, it was a sixteen page photocopy you'd yep. walk around with. On your first ever issue of yeah. Silicon Alley Reporter, there was a picture of Billy Corgan smashing pumpkins playing second some episode. concert, second one. So <laughs> super early on, Tibet. black and white thing. Concert and it was Tibet. something where you're oh, like, yeah. oh, I just got some picture of the guy and I'm just going to, because he's a superstar, I'm going to stick that on the front of my magazine, sell more copies and yeah. show that off, right? That was a big thing to you. What I, what I also love about this is that he kept trying to, he was very polite and really interesting, but he kept trying to talk about technology or entrepreneurship or his startup and you kept pushing him like- I wanted did. to talk about I know, it was really, really, really Sorry. Funny. So anyway, so this is- Back to science. Anyway, dream. this is like two, right. in, this yeah. is two in, very funny instances of it. And the first time he tries it and then the second time he tries. Okay, so the first Here clip. You know, not to get uh, overtly spiritual, but you've got to be available. Like you've got to make yourself available for the download. Like that's the thing you learn yeah, as an artist. That? You know, you learn, to, you learn to not take things for granted. You learn to like when something when you get a feeling you move towards it and it's like you know i hate to just you know pivot into my own company yeah. but when i saw the live one product yeah. there was a resonance around yeah. it that you know like one thing one thing i know is the perception of that resonance yeah you can feel it you know, yeah twitter has it right right there's companies out there that have something beyond an identity they've right. got a psyche, like right. a psychic connection. And what do you? What, what is the? <clears throat> is there some um, foundation to that that you think? Because, you know, is it being young? Is it being angry? Is it being high? Is it being 
um, desperate, having desperate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, right. or is it like the desire um, to want to be loved? Is it desire to to want to see the audience actually feel something? What is it that it's makes those that. moments? Do you know, it's all of that. What is it for you? It's all of that. When you look back on that time, like what is, what was it motivating you? It's wanting to compete at the highest level. Ah, competition. You know, yeah. It's really, it's really, uh, it's really having only one answer. Right. And that's, you know, to be at the top. Right. I mean, even, you know, when Billy and I started the band in 1988, there was only one way to play. It was either go for the top or go home. So that was about 15 minutes into the show. Now we're at 40 minutes into the show. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and we still haven't talked about a story. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, here we go. Go ahead. Oh, no. All right. Is this a tech show? It is. But you know what? I just, I'm sorry I'm so enamored with you, and I'm so enamored with artists. And so let's talk about your new project. Uh, I literally, I'm, I, I don't have many fan moments. Like, I'm not really like a fanboy of anything, but your music I've seen is your, I've so, seen your show. You're usually pretty harsh on I'm I mean, very I'm harsh on everybody. I've seen you pick guys apart. Of course, of course. I'll pick your product apart if you want to in the next <laughs> in the final segment. Please, no, I didn't but, mean that. No, 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 but I, I'm, I listen. I just have to be honest with you. Like your music played a seminal moment in my. I appreciate uh, a seminal that. moment in my uh, maturation in the in the '90s in New York, and really when I became a man, when I really started to, you know, just become who I am now. Like sure. the music is very meaningful to me, even to this day. And New York and at that time that. was the greatest point place. In the Wasn't world. it? I mean, oh. the New York in the '90s, you know, pre nine eleven. Pre nine eleven, you felt like anything was possible. Right, and I don't know, you know where you live, but I remember going like to the Continental oh, Divide, the Chase Bar, oh, course, uh, like man. Scrap Bar, yeah. remember? And, like, or I mean, how about like all of Peter Gation's places, Limelight Tunnel, Limelight, yeah. Palladium. Or, did you ever go to Robots, like Save the Robots, electronic music down the Lower East Side? No. Yeah. But the Lower East Side used to be amazing. Like there were just all these great places. Oh, Roxy yeah. was great. I mean, sure. just everything. Alphabet City with King Tut's Wawa Hut and, yeah. and 7B. And, 7B, yes, right? of course, yeah. 7B. Like, and the interesting thing was like, if you went to A, you were going to get attacked. If you went to B, you're going to get mugged on A. You're going to get beat up on B, and you're probably going to get killed on C. That was sort of like our, yep. you know, like if you want to go that way. Yep. And like actually the drugs got harder as you went. Oh, yeah. No, it Like was if you were on A, there. you were smoking weed. If you were on B, <laughs> you were getting X's or blow. And then when you went to Z, it was heroin. Like it was just... And now I don't know. Have, have you been there? Oh, it's ridiculous! It's so like, heartbreaking. It's, it's like, like a literally grocery they, store. They turn New York into like this Epcot center. Anyway, <laughs> I'm being ridiculous. That was but, terrible for me. I should have. Did he have a startup? What, is, what does that guy do? Now? I, yeah. Who knows? I just I was so fanboyed out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, With, well, it's the Smash Pumpkins. They were a, a when deal. I was in high school. They were like a huge deal. Yeah. I saw them play the K-Rock Weenie Roast. Wait, Tyler, did your band open for them? You knew them, right? Sonny's did. Um, oh, Sonny's I did. toured on the Infinite Sadness tour, actually. and Actually, I intro introduced uh, Jimmy's wife uh, when I was actually in their wedding. Oh, wow. Who knew? Tyler was in a band. Sure. And mm -hmm. then people don't remember this, but one of the devices on the show was Insights by Tyler. Insights from Tyler. Insights from Tyler. Yeah. Because Tyler would say some things at times that we had to unpack on. Yeah, Tyler was a big a big fan of like abstract similes and metaphors that right. we would then have to sort of. And some of these lay, might yeah. not work ten years later, <laughs> but the one that sticks with me was because somebody made a T-shirt of it. It was like having a wheelchair in Disneyland. Right. It and, was it was like it's like when you in elementary school when you used to break apart the sentences and they'd be yeah. like now this is the participle and this is the I gerund. still don't understand that yeah, yeah. that that's what and we then would he said do. one it's like buying Ugh. roses for a nun wow if you like buying a dozen roses Tyler for a nun 
And people didn't, and I'd have to repeat them and try to unpack them. Mm-hmm. It became a whole bit. We had and a, it became it a, a bit. It had a jingle. It had a jingle. So here we go. Insights, Insights from, from Tyler. Tyler. Yeah. And it would just play, and it was great. Then we had the best insight from Tyler, and I think we have the clip. So let's play oh. the greatest insight that Tyler, in, in Tyler ever history. made in Tyler history. We're going to bring it up now, Tyler. Brace for impact because this could be career ending. Here we go. Newer people might like that one. But I, I think old school wise, you really have to go with that. But let me see. The winner of the best Tyler insight is, and of course, the interesting thing, if I can get this open, is that Tyler wins no matter what. Tyler is definitely the winner. Do you have a speech? I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure Tyler's going to win. Do you have a speech prepared? No. All right, here we go. It's not like a wheelchair gives you, man. I actually got it right. And I actually did not know that, but I knew that this would be it. Congratulations, Tyler. What a professional Very operation. Very good, Tyler. What, what a professional operation we were. I think it's going to work, right, Tyler? It's, it's, it's amazing the percentage of these kinds of opportunities that work out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like white guys in hip-hop. It's like on a percentage basis, it works out really well. Hmm. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> That was an Is incredible that a good thing or a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. Okay. It's like wheelchairs at Disneyland. It's like you, you're going right to the front of the line. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So that's an insight from Tyler. <laughs> and then we used to show this like, photo oh, of me right. and Tyler climbing the Bay Bridge in Sydney <laughs> because I had gotten a ten thousand. Did I get like a five thousand dollars speaking gig, Tyler, or something, to go to Sydney? Ten. <laughs> No, that was CBIT Australia. That was at least 10000 at that yeah, time. Yeah, CBIT Australia. Tyler used to do my speaking gigs. I said, Tyler, see how much money you can get? They give 10000 And then he's like, and they're going to give me $2,000 to speak. And I was like, great. We couldn't believe it. So Tyler and I and Jade, before I had London or any kids, we went there. And one of the things you could do was climb the bridge. Sure. But you had to wear a dorky hat yeah, and these is. dorky sunglass things. <laughs> and so we we're like wearing these jumpsuits and everything. Like, so let's take a picture. Here's the fuck. Yes, but here's a funny thing that nobody else knows except for you and me. Yeah. Is Jade is in that photo. Yeah, Jade was camera shy. She's in the photo. Pull the photo back up. Now, you have to ask yourself, where is Jade in this photo? Oh, the, the, under, yeah. under, under the light bulb. So we put we covered Jade up with the light bulb and said inside to because she didn't want to be on the program. I was trying to protect her privacy, but she's in between us. And we were like, let's do the dorkiest thing we can think of, a thumbs up on the top of the Bay Bridge. Yeah. Uh, but we had dorky. such a great time. Uh, so many great memories <laughs> of going to Long Gray and hanging out with Mark Pesci, who then wound up doing This Week in Startups Australia, which is now in its eighth season. Wow. And that's amazing. And that makes enough money to like pay for the podcast there. We don't make any right. money off it, but I was just like, you could take it. And so I was hoping that Tyler went to Europe, would do This Week in Startups Europe, but he's too lazy. To do that because he lives in Thailand and he works two days a month. He took the best of my playbook that we developed together and then he said, how can I do this but have 28 days off a month? J. Cal works 28 days and takes two days off. He flipped it. We also had this crazy contrarian guy um, on episode 525. That was another interesting moment for the show. And that guy later got Trump uh, elected. His name was Peter Thiel. And I had known him. He came to the event live. And that was not an easy interview for me. Um, but he had a good time. Um, and it was pre all the Trump stuff. Let's hear Peter Thiel. You know, people always characterize me as contrarian. I think that's, that's misleading. You know, one plus one equals three. That's a contrarian belief. It's not interesting, untrue, won't get you anywhere. 
Right. So it's always important for it to be something unconventional, no one's thought of, but that also uh, has, you know, either is, is intellectually true or has some merit in the business context. You know, like seasteading. What's that? <laughs> That's his idea about he's going to build a platform oh, right. and go live out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, that was pretty contrarian. Uh, his libertarian Pacific paradise. Yeah. It's very contrarian. Super contrarian. <laughs> it's about as contrarian as it gets. I think of him as like, do you ever play those Bioshock games? <laughs> it's like, there's like the underwater city that the crazy yes. megalomaniac Andrew Ryan runs. He, he, he does I his best him to make that. himself into a Bond villain. Yeah, that's the right. The truth is, actually, he's just a very considered guy who has weird thoughts that are different than everybody else's and has been rewarded for them in life. The Trump thing. He shouldn't have, he shouldn't have shut down Gawker. I'd, I'd I'd prefer a world where we still have Gawker and Deadspin. You know, it's it's a Gawker on its best day should exist. Gawker on its worst day should not. And Gawker on its average day was, you know, just mild trolling. Like if you think about their best work, uncovering people who did bad things in the world and who were hypocrites, noble. Publishing stolen sex tapes, loathsome. Sure. outing people who did not want their sexuality I'm, I'm to be out not defending, I'm not defending everything Gawker ever published, but I don't like the idea of billionaires getting to make decisions about what media should get to exist. But I do respect his long-term, I'm going to destroy this company. Oh, oh, it's petty. I mean, it's petty in a, in a legendary way. I mean, is there anybody <laughs> who's ever done so, played such a long game? It's an, it's an iconic moment in pettiness. That's sure. the story somebody needs to make a movie of is not about Gawker, about Peter Thiel and yeah. Nick Denton. Because at the crux of this, and people don't know this, the crux of the entire brouhaha was that Nick Denton was a gay man who was out at the time. And people have to remember, this is over 10 years ago, when being out was not a given. It's still not today, but certainly back then, in business, Tim Cook and Peter Thiel did not want their sexuality known because it would have ended their careers or hampered them. And for Peter, it was acute because he was managing money from the Middle East, where being gay is put you in jail and get you murdered. When Nick Denton saw that he wasn't coming out, but he was seeing him at gay parties. He kept asking everybody on his team to out Anderson Cooper and Peter Thiel and Tim Cook. And they outed Peter Thiel. They didn't out Anderson Cooper directly or Tim Cook. They kind of just kept alluding to it. Dancing around it. And Peter, they were messing with his paper. This was his (laughs) money. was from Saudi Arabia in some cases, was what I heard. And for Nick... You, if you were going to be gay, you had to be out. It was just black and white to him. And, and that was what the whole beef was about. The outing of one gay man by another gay man. I like that Netflix documentary about it. Nobody speak. It's very yeah, good. it was pretty well done. Pretty good. Do you remember that time, Tyler? Because I was still friends with Nick at the time. I'm still friends with Nick. Yeah. yeah. Friend well, yeah, you guys had a really interesting relationship. <laughs> and I think you solidified around the fact that you both really were the earliest of pioneers in the blogging space and respected each other in that way. But you were also very competitive. Yeah. Um, and like Valleywag used to go after hard. you. Hard. Valleywag would go hard on me. But you never tried to shut them down. You were just like, no, hey, I screw those guys. I'm, I'm happy to be relevant. Right. You know, I'm happy yeah. to be relevant. Um, and then Tyler left um, and went to Stockholm at some point, And I lost my collaborator, and he created his own conference series, which he 
was kind enough to let me come and interview people. And one of the people I interviewed was Daniel Eck. And here is Daniel Eck about accidentally becoming an entrepreneur at the age of 14. Thank you for setting that up, Tyler, when I went to Stockholm. Um, so my first company was when I was 14. It was 97. So it was in the movement where everyone needed a homepage. And uh, you had this really big, expensive consultancy companies who were charging like $50,000 to make the simplest web page. Um, I didn't care that much about any of that. And then one day someone came to me and said, hey, can you build a web page? And I'm like, no, I'm not really interested. Well, name your price. And I just said, well, $5,000, just something that sounded absurd. Um, yeah. And the person it, just, just for the record, $5,000 for a 14-year-old is absurd. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I, I just said that number. And uh, the person said, fine. Uh, something like shit. I, I get to learn how to create web pages and right. uh, can't be that hard. Yeah, that 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 was my attitude. And uh, next time, um, you know, someone came on and say, "Hey, can you create another web page because you did this first one really well?" And I said, "No, I don't really want to do it. Name your price." I said ten thousand dollars, and then all of a sudden, I got ten thousand dollars. So, so this business thing actually came pretty easily to me. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. It really is that simple. You just name the price and keep doubling it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you it's, built a company eventually out of that? Yeah, I, I, I sort of did. Um, but, but it was like pretty much by accident. And it's really great because, you know, what I find in a lot of these conversations is that nobody ever asks the founder how they became a founder or what they did before. They're just obsessed with whatever's of the moment. Like Spotify is the obvious thing to talk about. But asking, hey, how did you get started? There's always some very interesting story like that I, I found, Tyler. Yeah, uh, I, I feel the same way about events and conferences. For example, you're now in Europe, and that event is the Stockholm Tech Fest where that was at. And the origin of that really is like trying to celebrate all of the cool innovation that's going on in that region. But you've got other big conferences, you know, and that was it obviously uh, has a pedigree kind of born out of launch. Um, the launch festival has its own origin story. There, you have Slush coming up in a couple of weeks, which has its own origin story. Not only do people have their kind of entrepreneurial origin stories, but so do the products and the the events and the podcasts. All gets coming down to what is the DNA and the genetics of the birth of or the conception of this thing. Often stays with the founder. Like to you, this podcast is in you know. You, you constantly are reminded of the origin and the, the genetic conception of why it happened. A lot of the viewers that, that come on years, months, months, and years later don't know how things start. But to the founder, it's always born from that, right? So to Daniel, and as he explains in that story, you know, at his core, he uh, was born from this, and, and it will always be that way. And it is special to hear people's origin stories and how they perceive their own thing, which is often just so, uh, uh, oftentimes a huge surprise to people who, who aren't familiar with it. Ryan, what do you think the perception of the podcast is and how has it changed over the years? You now live in Silicon Valley as well. You've been with me for the longest. What do you, what do you think about the, the legacy now that we're sitting here at 1,000 episodes? What do you think the legacy will be? What I love is something you mentioned earlier, which is that somebody would listen to this with friends in high school or college, that they would binge on this, that this was their fuel, that this was the thing outside of their day job 
where they were thinking, maybe I have a shot. Maybe I can build a product hunt or something like that and someday get on the show. Hmm. And then to watch those things happen is phenomenal. You bring up Ryan from Product Hunt, who was a super fan of the show, who used to call in. Mm -hmm. And then he built Product Hunt and came on the podcast and he told me that. And I was like, really? He's like, you don't remember me calling in? I'm like, I don't remember last month's guests. I can't remember anybody's name. I first met him at like a launch event years ago huh. and he was like he he could geek out and like he could tell you episode numbers. He was like, "I you said this thing on episode ah. 94 and it's like, I don't know how the, I, it, it, I it's crazy to me that the the show has spawned those level of dedicated fans who can cite chapter and verse like that." Yeah, so there was an interesting question. I talked to Nicholas Zenstrom and Sebastian uh Simtakowski um, from Klarna, the investor in the Klarna. And I asked him just about immigration. And, no, Sebastian, um, Sebastian's the founder CEO. Of Klarna, which is one of the Co-founder. unicorns. Yeah. And then Nicholas obviously did Skype and a bunch of other stuff, and he's a billionaire. Um, but anyway, I asked him a question, uh, and here's the controversial question. What about immigration here? This is a big issue. We could talk about abortion if we want to talk about something less controversial. (laughs) How about religion? Religion is not very controversial. Not controversial. Everybody's Uh, an atheist. You know. um, No, but about immigration. No, immigration in Sweden. It's 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 um, it's. uh, You know, I live in London, and I think it's fantastic. (laughs) Where I'm an immigrant in London. No, but what I'm going to say is that London is is a fantastic place in terms. It's such a melting pot. Mm. You know, it's like you have people from all different cultures and yep. they're just completely like integrated in Sweden. It's, it's, we don't, we have not been very successful with, with, you know, with that melting pot yet, I think. But right. it is, I mean, and it is sad. There's a, um, anti-immigration party right now. That's almost up to 25% of the votes. Anti-immigration. We and, are... I, and I think, I mean, I just, I look at that and I just feel very foreign in my own country. I am an immigrant myself. I mean, my, my parents were Polish. I'm born in Sweden. So I'm second generation. But I feel very foreign when I see 25% want to vote on that. Because to me, it's like, to me, um, you know, I just, I welcome having more people here. I think it's such a lot of fun. And I think all the people that we bring. um, Thank you. And the background here was Tyler tells me before we get on stage that the whole country is dealing with, and this is Mm. pre-Brexit, pre-Trump, 2015, but that immigration is becoming a bit of an issue there. And I said, you and can't I said, say that you can't imagine how big of an issue it was at the time. It was a very big and still, issue. And still is. And still yeah, is. And still, right. I was like, I'm should ongoing. I bring it up and bring it up as a discussion? You know, cause he asked me to MC uh, and do a mm-hmm. bunch of interviews. I was like, you know, you tell me it's your show. And he, he said, yeah, bring it up. Yeah, do you, do you, if you watch that clip closely, like the looks on their faces that you brought that up, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> well, they were just choking on their words. Yeah, The whole okay. audience literally gasped. If you listen closely, it's hard to hear because they're yeah. very, very large. Jackie, room. you were with but, me. You had to the, come. He, yeah, and I think also for, for context, it's hard to remember what it was like in 2015. It was right before, this was about a week. Tyler, you remember to probably this is literally like a week before that picture of the dead toddler who drowned in Syria uh, came up on shore. Yes. That's that was the seminal moment when that issue became a worldwide crisis. Right. And it was like kind of leading up to that moment. It was right before that moment. 
And um, and so people were not really talking about it that openly, but it was obviously something that was brewing. And so I, I felt it too. It was like electrifying. I mean, no one was supposed to be talking about it. And it was just like something you were not supposed to talk yeah, about. I mean, Tyler, you, you would probably know a little bit more. I haven't spent a lot of time in Scandinavia. But uh, one of the things that I, I think there's a tension there because it's a it's a group of people, it's a nation that sees themselves as very progressive. They they think of themselves as a very liberal nation, as a yeah. very forward thinking nation, as very progressive. But then where the rubber meets the road, they're confronted with this harsh reality of, oh, we really are going to be bringing in all of these far people. A lot of the people who live there don't necessarily like that. So I think you get a lot of tension between how Scandinavian countries tend to see themselves and depict themselves and then the reality of actually doing these things. I think there's a term for it for the liberals here. I don't know if they call them limousine liberals. Or... Sure. Or like even just that idea in America of a neoliberal that you really – you mean? like the st- – you're c- – what I take it to mean, and I, you'd ask 100 people, they have 100 definitions. You're comfortable with the status quo. It's about sounding progressive. Got it. Virtue pro- signaling maybe, but when the rubber hits the road, you don't want the methadone clinic or the homeless clinic in your backyard. Exactly. So and Santa Monica and Mill Valley. and It's what Monica a lot of Hill progressive used. Democrats would accuse centrist Democrats of being. It's like you're triangulating, you're playing it safe, you're basically a Republican in Democrats' clothing. And I think that that's some of the tension that goes along with this in, in progressive countries. Tyler wants to do the clip of Peter from Pirate Bay. This is somebody who went to jail. Set this up how you got him, Tyler. Yes. Oh, he's become a bit of a buddy now. But um, the Pirate Bay is from Sweden, which I think a lot of people don't know. But an interesting background is, I think you say this in your question. And I remember we went to dinner the night before, um, and I said, here's a great question uh, for Peter, which is um, all of the P2P explosion that happened, which was the, the most popular one, of course, was Napster, but there were several others. There was Scour.net, which was Travis from Uber. Then you had uh, Kazaa, which was Nicholas Zenstrom, who you just showed a moment ago, which became Skype. And um, Daniel Eck, believe it or not, which was uh, PeakTorrent, became Spotify, yeah. right? Coincidentally, a lot of Swedes in that mix. So you had the, you know, the P2Ps that shifted into um, becoming successful you know, massive companies and unicorns and then the pirate bay that didn't and it just stayed and they went to jail. So it's like you had these founders who became billionaires and then but but Peter here, you know, had a very different outcome and ended up in prison and uh to see his I had no idea how he would answer the question, but I absolutely and I think you did too, I think we both kind of became really impressed with how he handled that whole interview. Here we go. All right, so uh, you're most famous for being the co-founder or founder of Pirate Bay? We don't really know. We don't know? No, we don't really know. Uh, no one really knows who actually founded Pirate Bay. Or... <laughs> There's a long line of people who were involved in the peer-to-peer technology space who've gone on to do pretty interesting things. Uh, Daniel Eck had a company. Um, the founder of Kazaa went on to do Skype. Uh, let's see, uh, Sean Parker in America did Napster and went on to do Facebook and be the president of Facebook, the first president. Travis did Scour, peer-to-peer, and then did Red Swoosh, and then Uber. So big line of that. You also started in peer-to-peer and have done a lot of different projects. 
but you went to jail for your project. Yeah, because I have morals. Okay. That's the missing link here, like ethics, morals, and then... Okay, so the other guys didn't. Well, okay. I don't so. want to talk crap about people who's not here. Some of them might okay. be here. But, so. but I think I have a higher goal than most other guys when it comes Got to it. these things. So for me, technology is about what the change and the impact it has on society, not about how much cash I have in my pocket. Got it. So if you look at uh, a guy I'm very often uh, like referred to, like being likened to is Kim.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have very similar backgrounds. Um, you know, we started with the same computers, same age. We knew each other as kids. Uh, he's a little bit older than me, but just a little bit. Um, but he was more interested in the money part of it. Uh, I've always been interested in kind of the, what it does for other people. Yeah, and he went to jail for his beliefs that people, that yeah. copyrights don't exist in the world. That was a weird discussion. Uh, yeah, I would encourage people to go back and watch that interview because... He, even at that time, and uh, for those who don't know, and he has since, very, more than anyone I can think of, very accurately predicted where we are today in terms of Facebook and the data and the privacy and the centralization of power um, and what that all means. And he was saying this years ago when it, people couldn't get their heads around it, like, well, what, what would be negative about Facebook and the data and the control? And um, now I think People are now on the edge of 2020, finally coming around to understanding how much power these companies have and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like Gary Vaynerchuk at the beginning of this episode, so acutely kind of laid out how things were going to be 10 years later. Peter's another one of those uh, that has a a really keen uh, look ahead as to where the ball's going. Uh, One issue that's just coming up among people who are huge film fans, classic film fans, Matt Zoller-Seitz wrote a great piece about this, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, So physical media is basically dead. Blu-rays, DVDs, streaming has killed it. And now we're consolidating all of the power in terms of who owns streaming libraries in the hands of a very few companies, Disney, AT&T, Comcast, they choose what they want to have available online at any given ah. time. I mean, you could think of an example right now. Disney, they own every Disney movie. They own every Fox movie. They're going to put on Disney Plus or Hulu what they want. Not everything. Song of the South, there's a lot of articles. Now they're not putting it on Disney Plus for obvious reasons. But that's just one example. Uh, this article that I was referencing is talking about how they're not going to release Fox films from the archive for Revival screenings. So if you wanted to screen Fight Club in your town or Alien in your town, Disney might just say no. And there's nothing you can do. So, And the- if they're only available on streaming, a whole generation has no access to them because DVDs are no longer going to be they, sold. There's no more. Nobody has a VHS. There's no more Laserdisc. DVDs and Blu-rays are increasingly becoming oddities and cultural artifacts. People don't have a DVD player, maybe even in their home anymore. Right. Uh, if it's not available to stream, if these companies don't decide to put it up on iTunes or Amazon, it's gone. And they so can ghost it. It's, it just disappeared. Like you, you literally can't find a copy of it. And this, this happens today. I mean, I will sometimes think of a movie from the 40s or 50s and I'd be like, oh, I'd like to revisit that old film noir. And it's just, well, it's not, you can't buy it. You can't stream it. It's just functionally gone. And so 15, 20 years ago, it might have been kind of hard to think of a good argument for why you'd need to pirate something. It's like, you don't need to pirate that movie. Just go pay 3 or $4 and go rent it. But we're entering an era where that may not be an option anymore. Yeah, so, they, Disney used to do that where they say, okay, Cinderella, only available yeah. through December 1st. And then, 1st, and then, it and then, the then it's gone. Vault. It goes back to the Disney vault. But if you bought it, you still had it. 
they couldn't take it back out of your house. Right. And the thing now is it all goes back out of your house. So my dad, a couple of weeks ago, asked about the uh, the Abbey Road 50th anniversary. There's this three-disc set. Mm-hmm. Should I send this to your son who's playing all these things in School of Rock? And I'm like, uh, he'd love it, except I, we'd have to go out to the driveway to our car to get a working CD player to listen to this thing. We don't have CD players anymore. And it's on Spotify, but it might not be next week. Wow. That's where I heard it on Spotify. But yeah, they Spotify could take stuff down. It's and up it to them. It disappears forever. And then it's, it's very gone into the void. Uh, so I think we're just now, 20, 25 years later, starting to discover some of the value proposition that something like Pirate Bay had, which is anything could be available. There are mechanisms where right. some enthusiasts could put it up and you can watch it. But yeah. we're we're rapidly exiting that, that time period. Um, I have a friend who's not me, who uh, found on Reddit the tape traders uh-huh. uh, for Howard Stern. Sure. Howard Stern's oh, yeah. archive has been scrubbed because at the time the things he said were so inappropriate. He was in blackface, whatever. Sure. They were, I mean, it was, it was. Also just think about the expense of hosting all of that content. Correct. Decades of the Howard Stern show. And what was crazy about all this is they um, wound up as a group doing like this master project to put all of them into a BitTorrent. Wow. Every Stern show. And then they have multiple copies of some because they have the Boston and the New York tape. Right. And the DC tape, which have different pieces missing. Wow. And so you start thinking about this completist kind of thing. And then some shows, they are not willing to let people now do these shows uh, and these archives. They're not going to let them come out because they're afraid of like some old stuff. Right. Well, the Seinfeld Puerto Rican Day episode. That's a great example. Has it been ghosted? If you buy the DVD box set with every episode, it's in there. But if you watch it on streaming, streaming platforms- Because I'm not aware of that episode. There was an episode where the whole episode takes place. They're stuck in traffic. They're coming back from, I want to say, a Mets game. And they get stuck in traffic because it's the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Which is the most out of control of all parades. So the whole episode is- It's shot on this fake exterior street. And they're getting out of the car and in the car. And they're just waiting. And they're stuck in traffic. But the reason it got banned was there's one segment where Kramer accidentally lights a Puerto Rican flag on fire with his cigar. And it looks like he's in the street- burning the Puerto Rican flag on Puerto Rican Day and so people on come purpose. up to him. Right. It it's looks absurd. Like, Why, what's the problem? That it's offensive for him to burn the Puerto Rican flag on television. That's the joke. But that episode has been scrubbed from the airways. Yeah. It doesn't it didn't play in syndication. It doesn't go oh, on. Oh South Park had the same thing because they had an episode with the super friends on it. Yes. That were all the super friends, including Mohammed. Right. And they actually depicted Yes, they made a little cartoon because you're not supposed to make a an image of Mohammed. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So anyway, you know like, the... so that's an example of, you know, there's a real need for something w- where you can access this stuff, even if these companies decide they don't want you to have it. And of course, our favorite roundtable guest, Molly Wood. I'm wondering why we allow TikTok in the United States. Yeah. Because it's a Chinese owned company. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist here. What are the chances that the Chinese government is not using that data to study Americans to yeah. get some edge? Zero. Zero. In fact, we know from, I think, Bloomberg reporting that the Chinese government maintains an office in TikTok headquarters. So it'd be like literally if the FBI had an office at Instagram, 
Yeah. Where they just or the CIA hoovered up or the CIA actually secret more secrety. Yeah. Where they just hoovered up all the data. Well, in this case, it could just be that they're hoovering up the domestic data, right? Mm-hmm. The doma- the data of the Chinese users of TikTok. It's a completely different product there. Yeah. No, no, they're they're slurping up the American data. But they're data. definitely slurping up. And the then American you have to data. ask yourself, well, this has access to your microphone and camera. What are the chances they're not listening in and targeting and knowing no. who an executive is in business and turning on their microphone covertly? What's so interesting to me is that China is incubating this like parallel tech economy. Behind the Great Firewall, they are growing mm. the, the only other companies of the same size and power. Yeah, same scale. As yeah. Facebook or Amazon or Google. And so that at some point, and you know, Huawei is Apple, like there's like a, there's yeah. a parallel for almost clone, everything. Yeah, Cisco, yeah. And you just sort of wonder what is it like clash of the titans eventually like at yeah. some point this fully forward formed economy will spring out assuming that we don't shut it down with national security concerns i just realized and then there will be the battle for our future go around the horn what's the biggest change that's happened in the last 10 11 years of the podcast in society and life wow what has changed the most when we look at technology when we look at the industry what to you feels the most different about the last decade and i'll open that up to jackie as well for me i have one which i never thought i would see and i'm wondering what yours are what are yours do you have yours i i have one go ahead lon i'll do my last uh i mean i want to say i think it's it's social media and how social media went from where we all kind of throw our thoughts and opinions about what's going on to where we all find out what's going on. And it, it, it has become the center of life instead mm. of reflecting what life is about. And to me, that feels like a really huge shift that has mm. changed the way people think, changed the way people examine questions and solve problems and for good and some good for, for mostly bad. And I mostly think that that's what we're really seeing is uh, you know, we we had sort of thought, I think, in this utopian way at the beginning of the social media era that this is going it's it's egalitarian. More suddenly, voices. Suddenly more voices. If you have a good idea, it's a total meritocracy. Somebody will hear your idea and it'll virally and we spread. Were wrong. I think we we thought that there would be more like that it would be a better system, that it would be more efficient at r- bringing good observations to the top. That would be dropping down like like how Reddit's supposed to work. That We thought everybody was going to upvote all the good stuff and downvote all the bad stuff. And it would be this very useful tool. And instead, what we found is everybody's upvoting everything all the time. It's just noise. And now there's like no truth. Like literally Brit Hume, a newsman, will go on Twitter and be like, we shouldn't impeach the president because these guys think this, these guys think that. You can't know the truth. Forget about it. And like that seems like a reasonable opinion in 2019. We broke the truth. Yeah, we we broke the idea that you can ever know anything with any kind of confidence is just gone. Mm. And I think that a lot of that is on companies like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Hmm. Brian, what's changed most? Uh, I think there's something similar to that. I think that's fascinating. And the outrage you know, everything's on 11 all the time. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, it, kind of thing it, is it, that just, didn't happen back then. Yeah, there's but, no nuance. But but uh, you, you can take this and, and, and just take the Facebook thing. The idea that you can build a business, build a company, build a startup, make it big enough and powerful and just so important um, that it's more powerful in a country or a government is, is actually mind-blowing. is mind blowing. And then maybe for your listeners, uh, aspirational. 
Right. If with great power does come great responsibility. Well, well, take, take, take Uber, right? Yeah. Uh, what they moved into, what they did, they had a lot of laws that said, wait, you can't do that. And they said, well, we're going to do it for a while. And everybody well, voted with those laws. Well, yeah, everybody voted with like, no, I need the car to come to my airport to get me. I need the convenience of it. Mm. And it changed. You take the Napster and the streaming stuff, things like that. People voted with, uh, uh, sorry, record labels. I-, I want an MP3 in my pocket, right? Yeah. And I don't care how it gets there. And the laws all changed and the things all changed and those things became so. So I'm being, you know, silly that, um, you know, hey, hey, listeners, you can build a company that can take down governments or or be more important or more powerful, more influential in a government. But at the end of the day, you can actually build something that changes the world. Capitalism, entrepreneurship as an operating system creates massive change and it's only gotten more significant. Mm -hmm. Jackie. What's changed what the most the in the last? What's changed the most in the last decade since the show existed? You know, started in two thousand nine ish. What What's changed the most? What What about society and life, Tyler? If you're ready, we'll go to you while Jackie's thinking. Sure, I, I can combine both of those points. When the show started, we were in the PC era. It was pre-smartphone era, and you could argue it started with like the launch of Windows ninety five, and it went until the launch of the iPhone, and then the battle was between Apple and Microsoft, right? Hmm that that era and everyone was building websites essentially uh, during that era and then we went into you could argue microsoft won that era uh, and then we went into you know round number two and round number two was the smartphone era from the launch of the iphone 2007 until very recently and this battle was between apple again Surprisingly, Microsoft was not in this one, uh, and Google, you could say, was the other big one. And at the early days, it was BlackBerry and maybe a hint of Nokia. And uh, I think we can all agree Google has come out on top. Apple's a strong player still. We're going into the third era now, and this show has lived through all of these now. It'll be interesting to see how the show evolves in this new third era, which is um, a new platform post-smartphone of, of smart homes and smart cities and smart everything now that you have microphones embedded in every device in, in, your, in your home, in your office, which is either Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant. And this opens up uh, what leads to my point, which dovetails perfectly with Brian's point, which is tech used to be the playground of the geeks kind of exclusively. Right. And it didn't really involve the government in any real way. And then it, it, it largely in part due to you, the early innovations were in the in the realms of media and blogging and uh, the magazines Software. and the record labels. And yeah. And all of this is where the, the first friction points were. And then it moved into fintech and then the banks started feeling the friction of tech and then med tech. And now with this new era of uh, microphones everywhere and the data of everything and big data and whatnot, now governments themselves are starting to understand the power and the, and the opportunity and challenges of, of tech. And so you've got China using tech in a way that would, you know, is hard to even imagine in terms of how they use it as a control mechanism uh, of a billion people. And China's not the only one. China's the one that actually I have to give them some credit that at least they're transparent about the fact that they're using that data in that way. But so is the U.S. And this is going to become the, the big issue going forward is um, how uh, now that government understands the power of tech, which it never seemed to during the, the PC era or even the smartphone era, um, and how they want to use that as control and the 
US is forcing WhatsApp and WeChat uh, to, I'm sorry, WhatsApp and Facebook and you know, to expose all of the data in their sovereign territories. And here's the, just the most recent stories is Sweden, for example, no one really knows this yet, has decided, and Sweden is always a couple of steps ahead of other bigger countries because they can move fast and they're very progressive, is they've realized um, if for, for all government interests, we must have our own sovereign cloud and we cannot use third-party clouds in the same way that the U.S. is being kind of anti-Huawei. Well, Sweden's saying we need our actual, if we have our sovereign land, we control everything on our physical land, we have an immigration border around our land, we need our own cloud, we need to control all the data that happens in that cloud because we can't let Amazon have all of these services necessarily or mm, the other cloud providers. And I think you're going to see this become a new mega trend of, China has its own cloud, actually, its own sort and of own internet. internet. Yeah, yeah, and they're by the way, China's going to start forcing its internet on its partners because then that's the internet they control and the media that they control within that internet. Yeah. So if Facebook wants and to be there, Google wants to be there. You're going to be on our cloud with our authentication, correct? With our account, correct? We control everything. That's right. So either come into our sandbox, right. yeah, yeah, Jackie? and it's going to be the battle of multiple intranets, essentially. Wow crazy i mean i couldn't possibly follow uh, all that i just feel like it's for more of a gut and i'm also sort of older than everyone here i think so i have a bit bit of a longer term yeah. feeling and i'm newer to the tech industry um i think i think things feel like grittier now so i feel like before there was a bit more it was like very fluffy and frothy and there was like a lot of money and people were excited i think people are um I think there's a you know a downturn coming, and I think that um, you know, and and as you know, we've talked about this before. I'm very worried about climate change and all of these issues. So I feel like there's this sort of urgency and chaos that I haven't experienced before. Yeah, you know, I I kind of remember the '70s, but not much. I was pretty little then. But it was I, very optimistic when we started similar. the show, and now it feels like there's <laughs> yeah, so many big like... dark clouds out there. I know, and I know. Brewing. I didn't want to be like the downer here, but it, that no, is how I feel. I think it's uh, it could. <laughs> why, listen, we might be sitting here in ten years, and the whole half the planet's underwater, and you're going to have the most. You'll have the best clip. My, mine was about how everyone's brain has turned to goo. Mine is not totally yeah. goo. To mine is, and mine. It's I'll more just, thoughtful than that. <laughs> and uh, mine is. I, I really think. The thing that is the most troubling to me, it's inspiring in one way to Brian's point of just the impact these can have. And obviously, a number of people highlighted the negative impact the scale of these projects can have. And to me, one of the troubling things is when I started the pod, um, technology was looked at as, um, and the technology industry was looked at as inspirational, aspirational and humanity positive. And now we're sitting here and capitalism uh, is looked at as uh, broken, uh, unfair. And with that, people I think sometimes lump in entrepreneurs and startups. The capitalist system may not be perfect, um, but we want people to start companies and we want an incentive structure. We want people to believe that capitalism and people fighting it out in the battlefield of great ideas is an idea that's worth it. And we have to bring more people along. And you know, if you look at something as very basic as minimum wage as a floor um, for society or, or universal basic income, which I have some reservations about, I think the people who are winning so much in this town have to start thinking about just paying some base amount of tax as corporations, 
and being better citizens and not doing it after the fact, but doing it proactively, like a proactive way of policing yourself. And I think Twitter saying we're not going to participate in ads this time is the perfect example of that happening. Apple saying we're going to make your phones your domain and we're going to not let people track you. And we're going to use if you use Safari, we're going to remove tracking and we're going to obscure your um credit card number and we're going to be the company that protects citizens we're starting to see a group of founders and big companies start to think let's and and, and a cynic might say they're doing it because they want to avoid regulation but i think i think there's a crisis of conscience happening in silicon valley where we're just going to have to get used to an oversized impact in the world which means oversized um premeditation of what the impact of these products is and what the impact has on people yeah i mean i think that you know the capitalism versus socialism okay boomer stuff that's dominating like the twitter conversation of course and you're always going to have you know some young people are just you're you're more radical when you're younger It's, it's natural but i don't really think a lot of americans are stridently anti-capitalist i think they're reacting to what seems like totally unfettered unregulated capitalism run amok and just like you're saying if we could get a little bit more of a sense of balance where it didn't feel like eight people have all the money and are literally going to use it to go populate mars while the rest of us drown I think that you would not have as much. Yeah, of I mean, that there, there's a reason why AOC, Bernie, and Warren are becoming such significant forces in politics. Right, and I think that it, it the, the wealthy tend to do this very reactionary, like you're with us or you're against us. Like socialism is bad, and you, everybody becomes Joseph Stalin overnight. Yeah, it's I agree. And keep going. <laughs> and and I think that that is silly. And I think people hear oh, that sorry. and they recognize that that's silly, and that a little bit of you know, sort of like more progressive policies don't automatically turn us into yeah. East Berlin. No. Uh, and I and I think that that that's what we need is is for for it to stop being such a crazy binary, and then you won't have the same amount of right. anger. The the startup phenomena, which Silicon Valley used to be considered at the you know going back ten years, was really the mecca and the concentration of power and the be all end all of the culture yeah. globally of tech, and that is really. Uh, I would oh, say even point. kind of thankfully that's no longer the case that tech has really become a global thing and there are startups everywhere and that's now an accepted thing. And believe it or not, going back to the beginning, it was actually slightly, you know, unconventional that Mahalo was able to start in Los Angeles or in Santa Monica and not yeah. be a Valley based oh, no, company. They, At, we almost didn't get funded because of it. And we were, yeah, we were already in operation for like a year before you started hearing Silicon Beach come up. Yeah. Like we were already long time in Santa Monica before yeah. that was there. And now you've got, to, not only do you have Tinder and Snap and um, everybody else and their brother in LA now, you've got some people in the Valley thinking Ryan from uh, Product Hunt just moved to LA. You've got a yeah. lot of the notable people from the Valley thinking San Francisco to move breaking elsewhere. is definitely, and San Francisco not being the destination is definitely a sea change. It was the destination. Yeah. It was incredible to come here. And now it's become, I think, just hard. Booking the guest, Jackie, and just thinking about, we've been together five years working on this. So you've been here for the second half of the, of the program's existence. Five and a half. Five and a half. How have, in your perception, and be as candid as you can, how have I changed as a person and or interviewer in your mind? What's improved? What maybe hasn't improved if you were going to rate me as my producer? 
I think that you are a much better listener than previously. I mean, I think you're always good, but in terms of really listening, like um, being uh, kinder. Kinder? Yeah. Oh, no. I don't know if you like that or not. Yeah. I see that evolution in you. Yeah. You're more compassionate. I am more compassionate. I think you have kids. That's what happens. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, because you've had the twins. I mean, when I when I first started, you had London, but you didn't have the twins yet. Right. Like, you just get, like, a little softer. A little softer, <laughs> yeah. I actually care very deeply about the guest experience. I also yeah. feel like you've really had a good impact on me of even taking the work even more seriously. You can see we started, it was kind of us just goofing off. And then over time, got a little more serious, bigger audience. And now I actually take the work very seriously. Um, and you're you're bringing your four Emmys here and really leveling up the show has made me want to up my game. So I thank you for that uh, and your efforts. I, I was gonna tell, I was gonna ask Brian to confirm the fact that London. I think for the people who know you most intimately, it's been interesting to see how uh, London specifically was an interesting turning point. Um, and I'll let Brian riff on that. But the the other bit was. When the show started, you were more of an entrepreneur than an investor, and now you're more of an investor than an entrepreneur, and that's also been an interesting yes. perceptual shift that has happened. Yeah, I was thinking about building things and myself, and now I'm always thinking about other people and what they're building and how I can weasel my way onto the cap table. Brian, what's your take? Yeah, no. Um, man, I was going to say something completely different, and then she got all nice about this. Feels like you've been here more than five years, by the way. Like it, just, feel like it you've feels like you've been here forever. Yeah, yeah. I can't, exactly I can't right imagine now. this without you. So I'm yeah. glad you're here. Um, I, I like Tyler's insight. I like the fact that you were outsider, that you were upstart, that you yeah. were entrepreneur, that you were scrappy, and maybe more confrontational. Yeah. In those days and your approach to things would be more of a confrontational kind of I have to put myself on the map as a podcaster. Yeah. Whereas today, it's like you're an OG at this. I mean, it's it's funny when we did the blog thing, we were outsiders. The bloggers Big hated time. us. They, they just hated us. And then when you look back, you're like, oh, we were like pioneers in this thing. Yeah. So now, same thing with the podcast. You look back and like you were a bit of an upstart. Now you're a pioneer. Yeah. You're an OG. You've been around for a long time. And you also have shifted to more of that sort of mentorship mode. Mm. And I think it shows up in your interviews. Yeah. I, I try to look at them as, can I make this? I wasn't actually thinking at all for the first couple of hundred. <laughs> I was just like, hey, what's going on, everybody? Let's, I don't know. I, what do you do? Um, and I try now to think about every interview and say to myself, can I make this the best interview that subject has ever done can this be when they go and they look back and their kids want to see an interview with them and they have a choice between sending a cnbc clip or some other podcast they were on they send the clip of the one there with me and say this was the best interview i ever gave it's a good way to look at it if you look at your conferences so look at the like launch scale when i would host the second yeah. stage there is i felt a tremendous amount of pressure to make sure one the sponsor you know, loved what we did in their room yeah. versus your room. Right. Uh, and then also every single guest. So to me, I had to be thinking, sometimes I was actually giving a talk after somebody, which is screwy. But uh, I had to think about if nobody asks them a question, I need to ask them a question that right. makes them feel when they get in that car and leave, that it wasn't a waste of their time to come here. Right. That they got value out of this. Yes. That something happened. The guest experience. Exactly. The guest experience. So if you think of that from the, the conferences, hmm. it's the same thing for the show. Good way to approach it. I had a very meaningful uh, moment on the show when John Carreyrou, who is the 
Pulitzer Prize winning Wall Street Journal author, I had seen that he had done this story on Theranos and I had heard from my friends that Theranos wouldn't let them do diligence on their product. So when I heard him, after the first time he ever wrote the story, I had him on remote. And when I had him on remote, I just had him tell the story. And I never have remote guests because I like to have him in the room. But then when he came back on his book tour, he did publicly say that this was his favorite interview that he did. So mission accomplished to my goal of being the best interview that the person did. But he told me during the interview that the first time I had him on after the first Theranos story, as opposed to when the book came out two or three years later, during the first interview, um, one of the people who gave him a ton of information had seen his interview with me said, I saw you on there. You seem like a cool guy and you seem trustworthy. So then he slid into his DMs and he said that I the, the podcast had helped him break the story wide open through the function of one of the people who saw the first one. Wow. And so he started thinking of the power of the podcast to be contributing. But anyway, here is, here is John Carreyrou, the bad blood author. I think the, the fraud where it's much more egregious is the cavalier um, attitude toward patients and, and yes. you know, putting patients in harm's way and gambling with people's lives. They um, had to restate all of those blood tests, thousands So they, of them. they voided or, or voided corrected them. almost a million blood test results. What? And uh, my sources tell me the last lab director they had at the company who just left the company a, a few weeks ago was... Um, advocating, voiding, or correcting all the blood test results Theranos ever returned to patients and doctors because the quality control in the lab was so terrible. If he had prevailed upon Elizabeth to do that, uh, that would have been 8 million uh, voided or corrected blood tests. Yeah, it's an incredible moment. Um, And to have him on twice was just amazing. Now they're making a movie. And now they're making a movie about Jennifer it. Jennifer Lawrence is going to play uh, Elizabeth yeah. Holmes in it. Which is perfect casting because she can play really? crazy. She, I mean, she's great. I feel like I feel like Elizabeth Holmes looks exactly like Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Like, don't you feel like Amy Adams in a blonde wig doing that deep voice would have been perfect? Amy Adams would be great. Here's the thing. I think Jennifer Lawrence has a level of mania manicness mm-hmm. and Amy Adams more controlled. I just so I feel to hear like the Amy, voice. It's whoever can get that, well, you take the capsule and then you put in the blood and then you test the blood. Like It's like somewhere gotta... between Kermit the Frog yeah. and I was going to go as Elizabeth Holmes for Halloween. I went as Pennywise. <laughs> Black turtleneck. And, and I line. literally went and I got my wife was going to do my makeup and lipstick. And then mm-hmm. I just had this moment where I was like, this photo is going to get out. Even though I'm so going what? to a party it's where funny. there's no just hold up cameras. <laughs> and then I just said to Nick, I think we should do an episode where I play Elizabeth Holmes and I interview myself. Mm-hmm. But I play Elizabeth Holmes and do that as I a joke. It. And I would totally have done that in the first hundred episodes. But I feel like the show is, I'm a little bit more serious about yeah. it now. That, right. That's the goofy early days. Kind goofy of early that. days. All right. So we have the worst, most uninspired cake ever. Here it is, the Twist 100 cake. It literally says... 1,000. Twist 1,000. It's not the 100th episode, it's 1,000. <laughs> and literally, they did the least amount of work possible, but it was the best ice cream you could in ever have. In honor of the early days of this yes. podcast. In honor of the <laughs> absolutely horrific graphics we had. Uh, but in all sincerity, um, it is the great joy of my life um, to do this podcast and to be along on the journey with y'all. Thank you to everybody who's contributed over the years, the sponsors and partners who made it all possible, the producers and the directors who suffered through my voice and editing for the last decade. Sorry about that. Uh, To the tireless producers who begged people to come on the show who maybe didn't like me or the show and came on anyway and then fell in love with it. 
uh, and to my friends who uh, put a ton of effort into it when there was really no reason to do it other than uh, we were bored and thought it might be an interesting thing to do on a Monday afternoon. Thank you, Tyler, Lon, Brian, and Jackie for coming on the pod. Thank you to uh, Brandis and Gina, who did a great job in the early days, and everybody else who's contributed along the way. We couldn't have done without you. And to uh, you, the audience, who uh, tune in every week and who stop me on the street sometimes and just tell me their favorite episode. It really does mean the world to me to know that you're listening and that in some small way, the show might inspire you to go out and start a company uh, or to learn something. And to the guests who've come on, thank you for your time. And we'll see you all in the next thousand episodes. Bye-bye. <laughs>